Airline Pilot Guy, episode 332. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from a beautiful country estate in Banbury, Oxfordshire, UK. Today's show was recorded on the 14th of July, 2018. In today's episode, a transatlantic flight from by a remotely piloted aircraft takes part in this week's Riyadh show. The U.S. owner of a French bulldog has penned an open letter to airline JetBlue for uh, saving her life. We have more news, your great feedback, and much more. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 332 is ready for pushback. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And joining me today, from across the pond, doctor. in her doctor. beautiful doctor. lakeside doctor. home, doctor. a doctor, doctor. a doctor. IPA connoisseur. I'm looking for my show notes. I can't find them. Strength training junkie. junkie. Skydiver. Thank Pretty you. lady. Yes. All that. Goes topless. And, and much more, <laughs> apparently. It's Dr. Steph. And maybe clarify that that's maybe just the Jeep, not so much me. Oh. For anyone who's listened to Nick's recent edits of the show, I will maintain that until my last day. Anyway, um, you're across the pond. I'm not across the pond. I'm still here. We're across the pond from each other. That's true. We are. But looking forward to a great show. Good to see you all. Great to see you as well. And joining me in person today, in fact, sitting right next to me, we have professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi, Jeff. Isn't it great to be sitting shoulder to shoulder doing a show together again? It seems ages since we uh, were in the same room broadcasting, and it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, my thanks to uh, my friend Nigel beside me, who we'll hear of in a minute, for lending us his uh, beautiful house to uh, do the show from today. Absolutely. And also joining us from across the pond to me... From his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Good morning or good afternoon over there to you guys. How are you today? Great to be back. Great to have you with us, Dana. And finally, actually not finally. Yeah, I was going to say one of the... We have two more, actually. Oh, my... We need to get rid of this one here, don't we? Okay. We have the Trollolo music, our special guest host music, playing in the background. We have the wonderful co-host of the Plain Talking UK podcast, live with us here in Oxfordshire. Now, 
Bound. Thank you very much indeed, Jeff. And um, what a pleasure it is to be here. I'm here in a technical capacity, obviously, because it wouldn't be APG without a technical moment. So I had to be deployed at very short notice to bring a cable from my house. Now, that is not away. true. I mean, well, it's sort of true. <laughs> I invited him to come to be a in a co-hosting capacity, not a an IT capacity. But Nev but is he just... Saved, he saved your bacon, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did. Yeah. He's always pulling us out of the fire. Actually, it saved their bacon because I would have heard everything just fine. They would have not heard a thing because they wouldn't have had headphone inputs or whatever outputs. Anyway, Jeff's right. It was, and it's very generous and nice of you to invite me on the show. Well, we are so happy to have you here with us, Nev, and lending your expertise. And finally, we have the wonderful host of this beautiful country estate, his name, Nigel Demery. You may have heard of him. He was a subject of a very special Plane Tales last year. And uh, thank you so much for being with us and, and joining us on the show, Nev. I mean, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, George. No problem at all. You're always welcome. Welcome to Sunny Oxfordshire, everybody on APG crew. Um, nice to have you along. I tell you, there are too many people here with, the, with names that start with an N. We have Nick, Nev, and Nige, and it's just very difficult for me to keep them all apart. Also confusing. Yes. Very. Mind you, <sighs> Jeff is easily confused. Yeah, that is true. That is true. As, as uh, evidenced in my opening today on today's show, it's been worse than normal. <laughs> Don't forget uh, to introduce uh, the gentleman behind me. Oh, yeah. I for, uh, let me uh, play this. I forgot about that. Uh, if you're watching the video and uh, if you're listening to the audio-only version, uh, you need to look at the video here. Uh, in fact, we'll probably use this as our, our picture, so maybe you'll see it in the, uh, in the, in the blog post. Anyway, behind us, we have a gentleman, an airline pilot. They say that it looks a lot like me, although his mustache hair is uh, much darker than mine. And uh, he's wearing a beautiful uniform, a cafe. Uh, no, it's a Hong Kong legacy carrier. Hong Kong, oh, it's a Hong Kong legacy carrier's uniform. Uh, and uh, it's a good-looking uniform, if you, don't, if you ask me. And he's standing behind us, watching over us. It's pretty scary. The scarecrow. All right. That was the he's work. He's going to be a fact checker today. Who's the fact checker? Oh, he's, he's going to be, be the fact checker. checker. Ah, yeah, he's you know going to be fact, fact checker. Where are our fact checkers? We haven't heard from them in a long oh, time. I haven't heard from them. Uh, anyway, so I am so happy to be here. Uh, it is Riot weekend, the Royal International Air Tattoo weekend here in the UK at Fairford. How did I do, Nige? 10 out of 10. Okay. Um, we're going to go to that tomorrow. Uh, currently, uh, I think a couple of folks uh, more related to uh, uh, other aviation podcasts like uh, the Plane Safety Podcast and also guests of the uh, or guest hosts on the uh, PTUK are present at Riot today. So uh, uh, Pilot Pip and Captain Al are uh, enjoying the uh, the military air show there. Uh, we intend to go, uh, Nige and Nick and I are uh, going to head over there tomorrow to uh, take a look at the goings-on, and we're really excited about that. Um, let's see. I arrived on Thursday morning, and uh, Nigel picked me up from Heathrow and drove me all the way here. I was thinking about uh, hiring a car, as Steph is going to do, but then I thought better of it. Actually, Nigel talked me out of it. 
insisted that Neville he, is uh, shaking his head pick me up vigorously I'm glad actually not in a positive capacity we're, we're glad as well Jack. yeah I, I, I may not have been here today <laughs> if I had tried to drive but anyway thank you very much Nigel for uh, picking me up from the airport and uh, we've been just having a great time it's been very relaxed and laid back we uh, had a nice little um, field trip uh, yesterday. We went to uh, uh, some place. There's a, a bard of something or other on uh, Avon, Stratingford, sure. You want some help on this? Yeah. What, what, Stratford what upon Avon. Ah, uh, yes. That's it. And of course, we're talking about the birthplace of William Shakespeare. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, there was a little. Uh, well, is he a podcaster as well? I, I, well, he is the, uh, yes, the bard of, of the ancient English podcasting, <laughs> I think. Ancient? Well, not ancient. Um, well, William Shakespeare might be. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, we had a great time. We wandered around uh, Stratford-on-Avon and uh, got to watch um, a... What did you call those things? Longboat? A narrow boat. A narrow boat. The, the long the, uh, Viking Vikings sailed the longboat. Ah, okay. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, we had a great day. Yeah, there was a, a narrow boat. There's a canal there, the start of the Stratford-upon-Avon Canal, uh, where it uh, joins the River Avon, and uh, they have these beautiful uh, narrow boats, which are old working vessels that uh, used to ply up and down the canals, of which there are two and a half thousand miles worth uh, currently uh, available for use for main you know, holiday makers. In the old days, there used to be many more, but uh, they used to move all the big industrial goods around, all the coal and the steel and the whatever was made in the uh, industrial north. It was the main lines of transport around uh, England. Nowadays, they're just used by holiday makers. So all those narrowboats have been converted into. Some some cases people's homes. In other cases, you can just rent one and go on a holiday, and they're brilliant fun, and it's a gorgeous place to be. Mainly because about every two miles along any of the canals, you'll find a pub. That's the best part. Excellent. Sounds like something I could enjoy. Yes, yes. you would definitely. It's a very quiet and peaceful way of life as well. Chugging along about three knots, wending your way from pub to pub. Perfect. I like it. The the original pub crawl. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so later this week, we'll be attending the Farnborough Air Show. And uh, we're also going to be joined by the other co-hosts of the APG, Steph and Dana. We're Can't looking forward wait. to that. Yay. 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 So I know. I've got to suffer through four more days of work before I get there. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, and you're probably going to have to land and do a show the same day, Steph. Uh, I did that. Oh, no, I didn't do that last night. Yeah, probably. Huh? Yeah. We'll help Friday? you through it, though. Yeah. We'll be I'll there be for fine. support. The exact. So, if, uh, if, can I just make a quick plea? If American Airlines or anyone from that great company happens to be listening, I've requested an upgrade on my flight, and I'd be very, very happy to get some sleep <laughs> so that I can perform my duties as expected. Are you trying to leverage your cachet as the uh, co-host of no, the no, APG? No, no, just, no. If anyone just happens to be listening and has any uh, power in that capacity, I would be much appreciative. Much appreciative. So. That'd be great. Well, and, and for that exact same reason, because I'm flying standby and don't know if I'd actually get on the airplane, I'm going to try to drop half of my week of work and come on over on Tuesday evening, arriving hopefully Wednesday morning. The flight looks slightly better. And of course, 
Not that it really looks that much better, but I would be an absolute bear on Friday because I do not travel well, especially when I'm in coach. It's an ideal job you've decided to uh, take, Dana. <laughs> no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's the reason why I don't fly international, my friend, is because I don't handle the backside of the clock at all, okay. especially if I'm sitting in the coach seat. And, you know, I've got oh, – how, how wide are coach seats these days? 46 inches? 48 inches, maybe at the well, most. Coach seats, try, the width. 21 inches. I was going to say, yeah, but less than <laughs> that. Yeah, you have like that. <laughs> I don't All know right, what, so, <clears throat> what airplane you're flying on. <laughs> okay, so maybe I'm thinking first class. But anyways, I'm, I am, my shoulders are 56 inches wide. So I, I don't get comfortable on an airplane. It's even I even have a picture of me flying a Venice one time, sitting in the sitting in the lay flat, actually laying down flat in the lay flat seats in business class, and I still don't fit. So it's it's uh, not a comfortable experience. So I I'm planning on dropping half of my week to uh, come try to get on the flight on Tuesday night if they'll let if they will let me drop half of my week. Well, we look forward to seeing you whenever you arrive, and uh, we'll do our best to make sure that somebody's there to pick you up and bring you to the uh, lovely country manor located in Lys. He just doesn't trust my driving, is what it comes down to. That That's why he's not arriving actually. on the same day. A- after you've me. been on a red red eye flight in London traffic on a Friday morning, and you've been I in coach all night, and you're red eye and, red eye and bushy tailed. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if when anybody can best. do it, Steph will be fine. When I'm at my best. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, looking forward to uh, seeing you guys later this week. And we're planning on recording another show uh, at the end of the week. So I don't know when I'm going to have time to do all the editing, but uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. And let's see. Neville. Uh, everybody, of course, that listens to the Airline Pilot Guy show knows Neville. In fact, that, that theme song, uh, part of that opening theme song for, uh, for Stephanie. Uh, Nev actually created, composed and played and created for us. And uh, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, he's the uh, one of the co-hosts of the Plain Talking UK, the PTUK podcast. And he doesn't live too far from here, do you? Yeah, just 40 miles away. It's just under an hour's drive. And uh, it was great, actually. And the, the weather is perfect here. So great for uh, air shows as well. And uh, I'll be going down to Farnborough uh, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, this coming Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, to see the guys down there. Uh, really looking forward to it. And um, great privilege and pleasure to be on the show today. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for uh, agreeing to drive down and, and join us. And thanks for that quarter-to-quarter-inch male TRS cable that you brought with the, with you. He saved, saved our bacon. And uh, let's see, Nick, tell us what you have been doing other than texting. Well, uh, no, I'm just trying to organize with my wife the menu uh, that oh. she needs to buy for uh, and how many people she's That is important. So you want us to skip you and for, move no, on no, to somebody no, that's else? that's fine. Okay. I've been having a fine time. Uh, I have uh, jumped through every hoop that uh, has been put in front of me, and I am merely waiting for the CAA to actually get around to do, processing my... Uh, return of a medical and uh in the meantime everything's uh, quiet i've got a a roster uh, excuse me a roster for next month um so i don't think i'm going to work before that because the first thing event i've got there is a, a refresher simulator and then i'm looking at a san francisco that's my entire month's work next uh, month so that's kind of cool excellent and Yay. yeah yeah 
And Nigel, tell us about yourself and uh, what what uh, you have been up to the last few years. A few years. <laughs> the last, say last 40, 50 days. years of your life. I'm going to say the last couple of days have been wearing on the liver. Whose <laughs> <laughs> fault is that? <laughs> Nick's. <laughs> Always Nick's. Um, no, I'm seriously retired. I um, did 16 years in the military, 20-odd years at the Hong Kong Legacy Carrier, and then went to Acme Light Blue up near Kim Jong-un. Uh, did a runner about five years ago and uh, seriously retired and got the syndrome, I'm afraid, which is why we're all sitting here now. Yes, and we're so glad that you do have the syndrome because uh, it's so nice that you were uh, able to graciously host us because we're much closer, I think, to Fairford, uh, where you live here than uh, Nick's place, right? Yeah. That's why I said. Yeah. So, uh, and, and thanks to your lovely wife, Valerie. Um, she's really been an angel putting up with all of us. Yeah. She's uh, seen people like you before. Yeah. That's why she's not here, by the way. <laughs> yeah, she's done a runner. Smart lady. She said, Jeff, where's your wife? And she goes, oh, she's in Atlanta, Georgia, like, you know, thousands of miles away. And she goes, well, that sounds like a smart woman. I'm out of here. And she left. We don't know where she went. And I'm, we're not sure when she's going to be back. You're right. Probably after I Maybe leave. never. <laughs> so sorry. Anyway, well. I'm looking forward to today's show. Did we have anything else to say? Uh, let's see. We we talked about Fombra, that we're going to be there. There's no formal uh, event uh, scheduled. This is more of a, a casual, uh, just meet up with uh, our our fans and friends, uh, part of the community uh, on this on this visit to the uh, UK this year. Um, I'm sure we'll do what, our best to tweet and post on Facebook, Slack. And whatever we can think of, uh, locations of where we are, where we think we're going to be, and that kind of thing. So that uh, if you're here in the uh, UK and you're planning on heading down to uh, Fombra or uh, or even Riyadh tomorrow, of course, by, by now you're listening to this and it's already passed. But anyway, uh, we'll do our best to uh, provide you with our location information so that we can meet up. And uh, don't be shy. If you see us and recognize us, uh, you know, come over and let's hang out. Stand by for news. Okay, today's first item is regarding a special flight, a transatlantic flight by a civilian registered remotely piloted aircraft, an RPA, taking part in next month's, nope, not next month's, this month's, actually this weekend, it's already happened, Royal International Air Tattoo in, oh no, Gloucestershire is set to usher in a new era in unmanned aviation. That's Gloucestershire. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, Gloucestershire, Shire, Shire. Gloucestershire. That's there the we go. one. Well done, Jack. Okay, what, what thank you. Nick said. <laughs> As the first transatlantic RPA flight to land in the UK, it signals the beginning of a new chapter in the history of aviation and brings closer the possibility that one day airlines may routinely operate aircraft remotely. Yeah. 
don't think so. The General Aviation, no, the General Atomics Aeronautical Systems MQ-9B Sky Guardian, that just rolls right off the tongue, is due to take off from its base in North Dakota and embark on, no, it did embark on a 4,000-mile journey to RAF Fairfoot, piloted by an operator located in the aerospace company's flight test and training center in Grand Forks. It has a wingspan of 79 feet and can fly nonstop for in excess of 40 hours. And uh, our good friend, air traffic controller, Adam Spink, was actually, uh, can I say that? Uh, am I allowed to say that on the show? I don't know. Oh, well, we did. <laughs> uh, he's uh, working the control tower at uh, the uh, uh, the Riot uh, place, Fairfoot, and uh, it landed successfully yesterday, I believe. Right? No. The 11th. Wow, it's been here for a few days. Anyway, how long did it take to uh, fly over? I think that somebody was plane spotting it on uh, Twitter, and uh, I think it took, was it 48 hours or something like that? Or No, no. I thought like it only had time. an endurance of 40 hours. Oh, okay. It, it does. <laughs> so, like, wasn't it close to 20 hours or something? I'm probably way off. All I know is you. it took off, and then we went to bed and slept, and then woke up, and it was still flying. <laughs> so, I don't know. Anyway. I wonder how much of it uh, Adam actually, or the guys actually controlled, and how much they just uh, isolated airspace for it to enter th in, sanitized the airspace. I think that would be a good question for Adam. We should ask. Yeah, we should, Adam. If you're gonna, if you're listening. Yeah, I'm sure he's listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's no. a little busy at the moment. Yeah, it might be busy. <laughs> think he, he's just lounging around wearing that pink T-shirt. Do they wear yep. pink t-shirts? Yeah, in they Rio? wear yep. pink mm -hmm. t-shirts. Oh, because I know they do that at Oshkosh, right? Yeah, well, I think they do the same I think at Rio. They do have pink t-shirts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a strange uh, thing to choose. I don't know quite why they picked pink. I don't know. I like the color. Um, Nick, would you like to uh, take over and read the next news item? Uh, sure. This is uh, oh, <laughs> okay. Um, pilot ch challenges uh, EU age restriction on commercial pilots. So, uh, this is Captain Wayne uh, Bailey, a former captain for TUI, uh, with nearly twenty six thousand flight hours, and he's challenging the EU regulations which prohibit pilots age sixty five and over from flying commercial air transport. So. The lawyers have served legal papers on the UK CAA uh, seeking a judicial review of their position. The CAA implements EU law. I'm not quite sure why they've chosen to serve them the CAA because it's the EU that sets the law. Um, Captain Bailey, who uh, um, achieved the age of 65 earlier this year, um, it says runned. I don't think that's... Uh, Turned, I think. They yeah, forgot yeah. the T. Yeah, or then they swapped the R and the U. Yeah, I think that was a typo. Great piece yeah. of uh, uh, proofreading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well done, whoever produced this article, which was... Anyway, doesn't even say. Um, he said he was uh, a fleet manager in TUI, a uh, training captain for over 22 years. Uh, he was responsible for uh, over 30 aircraft and all the uh, air crews. Uh, passed all his medicals and competency examinations during his career at an above-average level. That's an interesting statement. Um, I'm, I'm above average. Well, yeah, pilot. because 
Yeah, you're, you're competent or you're not. You either you pass or you yeah, don't. Pass or there's not really not like a level of pass. But, pass and but pass, Nick, when, but... when we uh, refer to you, we always say, you know, Nick, he's an above average airline pilot. <laughs> That's just my height. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Steph, I was interrupting you. My bad. No, no. Saying the same thing. So anyway, he uh, and and also, of course, I'm I'm not saying this is this is fact, but uh, if you're uh, the fleet manager of an airline and you're doing the simulator, uh, which what sim instructor is going to give you a less than above average assessment? So anyway, uh, passed all his medicals. Um, he first uh, foot flew the Dreamliner from the UK to Barbados. Uh, where his father comes from. Uh, so he's obviously uh, an experienced and very capable pilot, but he uh, is complaining because the upper age limit of uh, an airline pilot here in uh, Europe is 64, to be precise. You can fly all the way through your 64th year, but once you turn 65, you're grounded. Uh, you, won't, you won't be able to keep your medical. Um, so he says... Uh, uh, he's prohibited from uh, flying when he turns 65, even when alongside a younger pilot. Now, the reason for that is once you pass 60 over here, uh, you have to fly with a pilot who is under 60. Uh, so even though you've passed a medical and you've been declared fit, there is an automatic restriction that uh, means they can't put two pilots together who are over 60 in that last five years of their career. Um, so basically, having read this before, what he's trying to do is say um, this uh, restriction um, goes against the EU, EU age um, discrimination policy, and he wants to be able to fly as long as he wants, uh, so long as he can pass his medical, and so long as they have a pilot beside him who's under 60 because he claims that that mitigates any risk he has of having a medical incident when he's uh, airborne because the other pilot will be younger and less likely to suffer uh, a similar occurrence during the same flight. So the aircraft would, as a consequence, be considered safe. Um, uh, I'm not sure why he wants to, having held all these fabulous positions, he, I'm assuming he can't be short of a penny or two, so one assumes he's got enough funds to retire. I'm not quite sure why he wants to fly past 65. Um, uh, he, he obviously enjoys his job so much and has nothing else in his life, perhaps, that he does uh, that uh, he wants to do instead. So um, it's a test case. Whether he gets it or not, I don't know. I'm not particularly keen to fly beyond uh, 65, I think, once you've done like 40 years in the industry, that's probably enough for most people. Does it say how many times he's been married? Ah, that's... <laughs> there might be a good reason. Yes, of course. Oh, uh, it depends how many times his pension's been halved, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, not in, I'm not personally on his uh, in favor of uh, increasing the medical age. It doesn't sound like he's the kind of guy who's got a... Uh countdown on his phone <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no that's a very good point steph uh, and i'm sure he would continue to be a, a fine captain 
uh, beyond the age of 65. But there's no doubt about it that uh, it, despite what you uh, as a pilot feel your abilities are, uh, I think there is an inevitable wind down of uh, skill levels uh, in later life. And you've got to draw the line somewhere. Uh, where you decide to draw that line, I don't know. But uh, at the moment, it's at 65. But if he succeeds, it might move upwards. Uh, I personally think the airlines might be quite keen to move it up because uh, as the pilot shortage hits, they can hang on to their pilots for a couple more years, those who are willing to continue to fly. Um, that would be beneficial. They won't have to find so many young pilots. I'm personally keen for the system to bring more young pilots into the airline industry. Uh, you can't just keep dragging the old, you know, wrinkly old chaps out of the cupboard and put them in the air you we need new young blood to uh, replace us and uh, uh, can you know have a career with us uh, and then let us go to a pleasant retirement which i'm sure for him will be a beautiful house in barbados dana dana did you have something to add to that oh no uh, I, I was going to say it's not how many times He's been married. It's more like how many times he's been divorced. So he kind of alluded to that. Yes. But yeah, no, no. My 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 adage to that would be: I've already seen a five year stagnation in my career. Get out of my way. Go retire. <laughs> go enjoy. Go enjoy. Go enjoy some rest. You old wrinkled men, get out of there and women. Get and, and enjoy some rest. And yeah. you've served the uh, you know safely for all these years. Um, and truly appreciate all the dedication. I'm just not talking to to him i'm just talking to you know there becomes a point which you just want to go and relax and not have to worry about recurrent and you know signing paperwork and flying an airplane i mean 40 years is a long time to do one job uh and it's been done very well so uh it's just it it, it i agree with nick um i believe if i'm not mistaking uh because of the same issue Air traffic controllers are, and maybe um, RA uh, could chime in on this one. Are required to retire by fifty-five? I think it is because fifty-six. Of, I think in the U.S. Yeah, fifty-six. Because of the loss of the their cognitive abilities, and it's not because they you know lose everything. It's because at, at certain age you start to lose the ability to do things in in a timely manner. So it's it's nothing t against older people sorry nick and jeff um but uh you know we we do worry, mate. you'll be here one day <laughs> i'm getting close and i'm i'm losing that cognitive ability real quick but so anyways i, I think 65 is a group you know that should be it I, I don't think it should go any further yeah it's interesting and is the last statement he made and as part of this story was there's a clear benefit to the public and the airline industry in having very experienced pilots operating in the UK. And this would also help address the current shortage of commercial pilots, especially experienced training captains. So that's kind of suggesting that the only people that should be allowed to do this are very experienced pilots um, and particularly experienced training captains. And you can't just isolate one group of pilots and say, well, you guys can move on to a greater age. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it for everyone, even someone who might have taken up flying at the age of 50 and um you know be have only like 10 or 15 years experience so there is that side of things and also uh, just the joe average pilot uh, who's not a, a, a training pilot um are you going to be particularly happy for him to try to uh, continue on uh you know into uh 
the time when most of us would be uh, sitting back and uh, playing lawn bowls and watching the television from our bath chairs. So could you continue, though, as like a sim instructor or something? Is well, he says there's no age for sim instructors, so this gentleman could be uh, keep his uh, training captain status and work just in the simulator. That would be fine. Yeah. Uh, I know several pilots that have done that. Um, why he? Uh, but of course, that would require him to take a cut in salary, which obviously he's not perhaps keen to do. Sure, but if you're doing it for the love of the job, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. I don't know quite what his motivation is. Yeah, I suspect it's. Hey, start a podcast, an aviation. There you podcast. go. There you keep go. you busy. Stay busy. Yeah. That's All funny. right. Anything else before we move on to the next item? I'm just going to ask Nigel if he's got anything to say. Nigel. Nigel. No, I've got nothing to Thank say. Thank you for the coffee, Nigel. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you want me to turn on Nigel's mic? Sorry. <laughs> I think he's gone to the Lou. Oh, I'm going to be there soon, I think. After he's out of it, of course. What's Lou have to do with anything? Well, <laughs> where, where is Lou? Uh, you didn't introduce him or her. Yes. He, he, he or she is a wonderful person. It might be the bloke behind us. Or it might be Lou. Oh, that is Lou, I think. Yeah. Okay, Lou, Lou is the porcelain, porcelain throne. <laughs> All right. I think we've uh, beaten that one up as much as possible, and it's now time for us to continue, and we're going to have Neville Bounds go ahead and take this one. Thank you very much, Jeff. This has been a very eye-opening uh, few minutes on the, working on this show, I have to say. But, uh, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> I'll tell you later. Okay. <clears throat> um, a good news story for a change, and we need it, don't we? Well, the US owner of a French bulldog named Darcy has penned an open letter to airline JetBlue for saving her life. Michelle Burt placed an oxygen mask over her dog's face when she was struggling to breathe with assistance from two flight attendants she said were named Renault Fenster and Diane Asher. The action worked and little Darcy was saved, with Ms. Bird saying she'd take her to the vet after the Florida to Massachusetts flight had landed. In a time when the news cycle is so negative and divisive, it helps to be reminded that good people are doing good things on a daily basis, uh, even if it is in small ways or big ways, like yesterday when I believe the attendance on JetBlue Flight 330 probably saved my French bulldog Darcy's life, Miss Burt said in a letter posted on Facebook. I noticed that Darcy's tongue was blue and I'm aware that this is a sign of insufficient oxygen, hypoxia, so I pulled her out from under the seat and placed her on my lap to cool down and help her relax as she was panicking and breathing frantically. The fact that the attendants were responsive and attentive to the situation may have saved Darcy's life. So I placed the oxygen mask over her face and within a few minutes she became alert and after a short time she didn't want the mask. I believe Renault and Diane saved a life. Some may reduce the value of the life because Darcy is a canine but I do not. And uh, JetBlue released a statement to ABC News about the incident, confirming Miss Burt's story. We all want to make sure that everyone has a safe and comfortable flight, including those with four legs, the airline told ABC News. We're thankful for our crew's quick thinking and glad everyone involved was breathing easier when the plane landed in Worcester. Uh, Miss Burt posted photos on Facebook of the incident, including Darcy being held by a smiling 
Mr. Fencer. Uh, French bulldogs are classified as short-nosed dogs, which are more vulnerable to respiratory problems. Some airlines don't allow them to travel in cargo holds because of the greater risk of breathing issues they face. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and there's actually... Oh, go ahead, Nev. I was just going to ask you, what, what about um, dogs with, you know, actually being in the cabin with, with um, reduced cabin altitude? Like so these brachycephalic dogs, the dogs that have the real short noses. So if you picture like French bulldogs, um, like this one, so boxers, um, trying to think Boston terriers, I think are classified that way. Bulldogs, shih tzus, um, any dogs that have that kind of real short muzzle, short nose are just going to be at higher risk for breathing problems in general. And you put them in a, a cabin of an airplane, even with, um, you know, reduced cabin altitudes like that, they're going to be at higher risk for breathing problems in general. So there's actually a recommendation that if that's the type of dog you have, you probably should not be flying with them at all in the first place. But this is a good news story and glad that little Darcy is okay. Yeah, brilliant. I did notice in the pictures that uh, the French bulldog knew to put the face mask over the nose and mouth. Pretty smart. <laughs> Smarter than a lot of humans. Love it. Yes. Thank you, Neff. Uh, moving on, let's see. I was going to have uh, Naj help us out, but he's still, uh, he still—he fetched us some coffee, which is uh, wonderful. And he is uh, doing some other stuff. He somehow has just decided he didn't want to be part of this group anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Was it something you said to him? Hey, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Did you take shower today, Nick. Oh, you know what? How about we have one of our overseas guests, um, uh, not guests, but hosts, uh, uh, do this <laughs> We've next. We've been reduced to the overseas guests. <laughs> These people that are on my screen here in tiny little video thumbnails. Uh, would one of you like to uh, take this next story? Sure. Okay. All right. So this is, um, oh, let's see here. Sorry. I got to get the right. Uh, it's D. D. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'll get there. Okay. Um. So let's see here. This says Alaska plane crash. All 11 people on board survive, officials say. So another feel good story here. <clears throat> In a remarkable story of survival, it appears that there were no fatalities when a plane carrying 11 people crashed Tuesday in the mountainous region of Alaska. It happened about 40 miles southwest of Ketchikan and rescue operations are underway, which I think have finished at this time. A Coast Guard rescue helicopter battled deteriorating weather and limited visibility. It had to hoist the pilot and 10 passengers to safety. The National Transportation Safety Board says the plane that crashed is a float equipped to Haviland Otter. Uh, the pilot called 911 after the crash on Tuesday morning. Everyone on board survived. However, it's believed many are injured. The injuries, injuries do not appear to be life-threatening. The plane took off from Prince of Wales Island Tuesday morning bound for Ketchikan, about 25 miles away. Initial reports are the plane went down about 2,000 feet up a, rock, up a mountain in uh, rocky tree-covered terrain. Visibility was reported at a quarter of a mile. There are reports that the plane was one of the sightseeing flights that are popular in the region. A spokesman for the Alaska, Alaska State Troopers called it tremendous that no one died in the crash. And the NTSB is, of course, investigating. Um, and then there's a second article here from... Um, the perspective of one of the survivors of the crash um, says a woman who was among the 11 survivors uh, described the, quote, terrifying experience and praised the first responders for their efforts in rescuing them. Uh, let's see. What did she say? She said that during the ordeal, she was scared that the plane was going to collide head on into the mountain. And she's uh, very thankful that they did not. 
just trying to see if she said anything else here. Oh, so she's talking about the um, going on, talking about the rescue. She says, at first, the rescue he uh, helicopter flew right over the group without stopping. I think they knew where we were. She said they just couldn't see us. I think they reported that the visibility was not very great. So finally, the helicopter crew was able to lower a man down to them. Uh, they described him as a very calming presence as he gave them instructions on how to get out safely. One by one, we all went off the mountain, she said, adding that they were all able to fit on the same chopper. Even though um, this passenger was apprehensive to get on another flight, the helicopter pilot's stoic countenance uh, comforted her. It was pretty terrifying, but it was a relief at the same time, she said, of being hoisted off the mountain. So she said she's feeling okay, but very sore. Interestingly, they don't have a lot of information about exactly what, ha why did this airplane crash? No, there's no, no real details. No. As of yet. And they don't really uh, mention anything about the uh, air crew other than that he was uh, one of the survivors. Correct. So it'll be interesting to find out what happened. It must have been an engine failure, maybe? Yeah, I, that would be one uh, reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's a single engine plane. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but... As you said, a happy ending. Absolutely. Yeah, and in, in one of the observations I made by the photograph uh, that I saw, and I saw the report on TV, is the aircraft is pretty much completely intact. If the airplane hit at a high rate of speed, i.e., just flew into the mountain, I would imagine that the you know at you know if it came out of the clouds and the mountain was right there per se, um, I would imagine that the airplane would be scattered and broken up into more pieces if it hit at a higher velocity. Right. So I think it was going at a relatively slow speed is my my thought process. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And it, he must have uh, adjusted the flight path to uh, minimize the uh, amount of closure with the uh, hard rock surface of the uh, mountain. Yeah. So, so presumably job well done by this pilot mm -hmm. or whatever yeah, was going like on. It looks like it pancaked in is what it really looked like. Looks like. So. Yeah. Yep. Not a very friendly uh, area to... Forced landing, that's for sure, is it? No. No, there's a lot of uh, a lot of challenges in flying in Alaska. Certainly. There's a lot of cumulogranite. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, from what we know, job well done by the pilot, so. And the uh, first responders. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's move on with E. Uh, Dana, would you like to do yeah, this sure. one here? Okay. This, this one's going to be fun because there's a lot of interesting pronunciations. A Mac a Martin Air Charter, let me say that real quick, Martin Air Charter, Convair CV340 registration ZSBRV performing a test flight from Pretoria Wonderboom to Pretoria Wonderboom, South Africa with four crew and three passengers was climbing out on a Wonderboom's runway 29 when ground observers observed smoke from the left-hand engine. The aircraft appeared not to climb anymore. Estimated height was about 300 feet. The aircraft appeared to maneuver to join the right downwind and turn for final when it lost height, impacting and broke through an industrial building and came to rest about 5.7 kilometers or 3.1 nautical miles 
east of the airport at a position, I'm not going to read that out, about 20 people on the aircraft located. Earlier say there's only four crew and three passengers. Okay. I, said that, I guess there were uh, some people on the ground that were injured as well. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's about 20 people on the aircraft and on the ground. Okay, received injuries. The flight engineer received critical injuries and subsequently died. Three other people reportedly, including the pilots, received serious in- injuries. The aircraft received substantial damage beyond repair, and the industrial building was basically split into two halves. Emergency services reported four occupants were trapped inside the aircraft and needed to be freed. All four, including the pilot, received critical injuries. They already said that. They uh, were flown to a hospital in Johannesburg. Uh, the aircraft was being prepared to depart for Europe to join the display. In, uh, you English folks, is that Lelystad? I get close. Lelystad. Lelystad. Yeah. Evelyn on. Never been there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lelystad. With our um, Dutch colleagues. So uh, we had a meetup there um, last year, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, Lelystad. Okay. Oh, what a uh, The Aerodrome Lelystad reported three of their museum staff were on board the aircraft. They were all okay with minor injuries only. The aircraft had been donated to Aerodrome by Rovos Rail. It had been restored to, into flying condition in the colors of the Martin Air Charter, which later become or became Martin Air. The cost of restoration into airworthy condition for the repaint was three hundred and fifty thousand euros. Yeah, that's a bargain. No, that's actually very expensive. It had been uh, had been spent by the Air Avrodrome. The aircraft was anticipated to join the display of the Avrodrome on July twenty third, and it was intended to kept in airworthy condition condition by the museum staff um that's all whatever close friends of the uh, flight engineer confirmed the flight engineer passed away as a result of the accident uh flight engineer had been working for both rovos rail and south african airways um listeners on frequency reported the crew joined a right down for runway 29 while on down atc offered runway 24 for landing the crew opted however the longer runway tonight. And there are some photographs here that will be, uh, I'm sure Jeff's going to post them on the link. You can, uh, first photo they have is the left engine uh, clearly has black smoke coming out of it. And there's a light pole in the foreground uh, showing the aircraft and its relative position to the light pole is very close. So you can get a, a kind of a good feeling uh, of how low the aircraft was. And then the next couple pictures shows the uh, aircraft actually after a post uh, crash. Um, crash and where it's located in reference to the airport. And uh, we also have some uh, audio actually from a video that was taken by a witness. And you can uh, listen closely. I don't know how far into it, maybe four seconds or so. You can hear no longer. Okay. Hang on. 14. Oh, 14. Thank you. I had to turn on Nick's Nick. Mic. How's that? Nick, how's it tasting? <laughs> we're, we're munching on stuff. Nick is Nick currently is chewing on lunch that he he and for those that don't watch the are not watching the video, Nick took this beautiful plate of food and put it right in front of the camera. So if I wasn't hungry before, I'm now hungry, and then now he's sitting there and has his microphone turned off and is chewing. And now it's turned red when I ask him how the food tastes. So there you go. There's their narrative on <laughs> what's going Behind on. Behind the scenes. He's not watching the video. <laughs> so, oh, and he's and giving him a, a signal, he's a universal signal. Number one friend. Right. Yeah. I'm his number one friend. 
<laughs> All right, here we go. We're going to play the uh, audio. Sounded like something let loose there. Yeah, about just uh, about five seconds before the end of that, it sounded like there was a, a crump from that uh, engine, um, and it uh, didn't sound good, did it? No, and it's a it's a shame that uh, so many people were injured and the uh, flight engineer lost his life, and it's really a shame for the airport uh, airplane itself. Uh, you know, heading to basically it was preparing for its last flight to the Netherlands uh, in that museum, and uh, now. Probably not going to be able to see it again. I doubt they're going to try to restore it. it. Looks pretty heavily damaged. It's pretty sad. It didn't have the performance uh, to get round on one engine. That is my question. I mean, aren't airplanes, even airplanes in that category class, kind of required uh, to be certificated to be able to fly in one engine? Yeah. Uh, or is it possible that maybe one of the uh, that failed engine didn't feather properly? Uh, is that, I guess, a possibility? Could be, but uh, he would have been pretty light. I mean, if he's, I don't know, was he actually on the flight to go to Holland? I think it said it was taking off from that place and landing at that place. So I think it yeah. was like a proving yeah, flight just, or something. Yeah. So he yeah, wouldn't have had uh, much fuel or uh, cargo on or nothing, really, just just the four crewmen. Very light. So, yeah, even if the engine didn't feather, the prop didn't feather, I would have hoped he would have had enough performance to cope. It might. My one question would be: Is it does it have that critical engine? Uh, you know, if the counter ro rotating props are they both rotating the same way? Because if that's the case, it probably my guess was that uh, it wasn't handled very well. You know, obviously, it's a light not. aircraft. There's no obviously no fire. I mean, it, you you can't see the photos if you're listening to the show, but there's obviously no f uh, post fire to the aircraft. So it's telling me there wasn't a whole lot of fuel on the airplane. And, uh, you know, the question is, is counter-rotating, if anybody knows the answer, is it a counter-rotating prop on both sides or, or, uh, or the same direction? Because that becomes a critical engine at that point. Yeah. Well, if they, Much more if difficult they are, to handle. if they're not counter-rotating props, this was the left engine that was involved, correct? So that would be the critical, the critical engine. engine. Exactly. And that makes it so much more, especially on such a high performance airplane. And yes, it should be certificated, certificated and should have been able to handle it. No problem. Single engine. So, um, you know, it, it, that, that would be the question I have. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully we'll find out, uh, what occurred in this, uh, circumstance. Uh, moving on to the next item in our news folder is F. Air China pilot suspected of smoking in the cockpit after Hong Kong to Dalian. How do you pronounce that? Dalian. Dalian. Nige, would you like to uh, do this? No, one? I can't read that far, thank you. Okay. I'll let you do it. <laughs> uh, a co pilot smoking an e cigarette on Air China flight, uh, on a Air China flight, caused the plane to start a rapid emergency descent. Wow. So, how does a e-cigarette caused the airplane to make a rapid descent. That's odd. You, you dropped it on the floor and it fell between the rudder pedals and you reached forward. Uh, well, that's possible. But, I mean, I thought maybe there was some kind of an electronic, you know, connection between the e-cigarette and the uh, autopilot system. Anyways, let's read a little bit more. Maybe we can find out what's going on here. 
Uh, they say he <laughs> tried to hide the fact that <laughs> he was smoking, <laughs> <laughs> but accidentally shut off the air conditioning, causing oxygen levels to fall. In other words, not causing oxygen levels to fall, but basically shutting off the air conditioning system, which provides the pressurization on the airplane. And the uh, the crew on Tuesday's flight from Hong Kong to the city of uh, Dalian uh, released oxygen masks and brought the plane more than 6,300, no, 500 meters, 21,000 feet lower. It later returned to cruising altitude. Uh, an initial probe by China's Civil Aviation Administration in China has shown China's Civil Aviation Administration in China, that's a little bit redundant, I think, has shown that the co-pilot tried to turn off a fan to stop smoke reaching the passenger cabin without telling the captain, but turned off the air conditioning unit instead. Passengers say they were told to fasten their seatbelts and that the plane had to descend. The regula regulator safety officer said the crew had to perform emergency measures, dropping oxygen masks until they could figure out the problem. If a plane loses cabin pressure, as we all know, the pilot has to bring the aircraft to a lower altitude to keep crew and passengers safe. Once they saw that the air conditioning had been turned off, they reactivated it and brought the flight back to its normal altitude. Authorities are reportedly investigating the cause in greater detail, examining both the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder to determine precisely what caused the incident. The airline promised a zero-tolerance approach to crew misbehavior on Chinese social media site Weibo. Or is that Weibo? I don't know. Weibo. Weibo. Thank you. Chinese flight regulations prohibit all flight crew from smoking and banned passengers from using e-cigarettes on board in 2006. But there have been accusations of pilots smoking on board other Chinese flights, including 2015, when the state-run radio spoke to passengers on a Hong Kong uh, on a Hong Kong-Beijing flight who claimed to smell smong, strong smoke coming from the cockpit. Now, Nige, you used to spend a lot of your time um, both living and flying in that region of the world. Is that a, a pretty common thing that Chinese uh, like to smoke? Oh, yeah. And the tobacco companies basically are finding it harder to sell their wares in other parts of the world. So they're con concentrating on Asia and what have you to sell their all the young kids smoke, and uh, they definitely need to have their nicotine fix. I wouldn't have thought it was a particularly long flight, but uh, that's what happens. In the good old days of uh, the Hong Kong legacy carrier, and we used to have one pilot who would uh, say, gear up, and as he as the FO selected to gear up, he'd light up. <laughs> uh, some people need their fix, so yeah, particularly in China. They're doing a big expansion in China, so honestly, it's really tough to keep flight safety standards going over there. Actually, Chinese safety organization is doing a great job, uh, but I'm not particularly surprised at this. It's a 350, isn't it? Well, I don't know if it said what kind well, of it airplane. Doesn't, it doesn't. I'm just looking at the pitch. Well... Well, Obviously, if it's a picture of a three, <laughs> I wouldn't trust the picture to match the what step. Really? Come on, oh, come on, yeah. that's got to be it. It is. It is a seven three seven. And it? what? It was on. Was it was seven three seven? Yeah, it is. Well, they're oh, showing look, the picture from the inside interior. the aircraft. It's a single aisle. But oh. that's, that's not the aircraft in the picture. Oh, I think he found another article oh, regarding okay. this. And I'm looking at the picture of the passengers. All the. Uh, Oxygen masks have come down, and I think there's a passenger fast asleep, not wearing it. 
So <laughs> she's already passed out from lack of oxygen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, they didn't even bother putting it on at all, let alone just over their mouths. No, I suspect that they've already got down to a safe altitude and somebody thought, well, now the panic's over, I'll take a Yeah, you I'll might, you a might well be right, Nige, yeah. But that right. makes it less interesting, uh, Nige. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we'd like to make up our own stories on the show. <laughs> Sorry, APG guys, I'll catch you up in a minute. <laughs> no, but uh, Nev did look it up and he found another source uh, of this uh, incident and uh, they clearly state in that that it is a 737. And looking at this interior photo, it does look like, like some kind of a narrow body, uh, could easily be a 737 or a Airbus uh, narrow body. Right. All right. Well, that's interesting. Uh I would imagine the zero tolerance policy and such uh, that this uh, first officer is going to be in a wee bit of trouble for this. Yeah, I would say he's yeah. going to be looking for a new job. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and then finally, uh, G Delta passenger forced to pay nine thousand one hundred and eighteen dollars for diverting a flight. And I think we talked about this incident on an earlier show um, about a month or so ago. Uh, there was a flight from. Portland, Oregon to Atlanta, Georgia, and a passenger decided that this would be a good time to uh, showcase his talents, his singing talents, and perhaps dancing as well. I think he was dancing on top of a, his seat and uh, singing very, very loudly. And uh, basically, the flight attendants told him to go ahead and cease and desist. And uh, he basically threatened the flight attendant and said, if you touch me again, you're going to be sorry. And at that point, <laughs> if you're wondering where the trigger is, that's the trigger right there. If you uh, threaten violence to a flight crew member. And uh, so the uh, captain decided to go ahead and divert to Tulsa, I believe. And, uh, oh, that's right. I remember playing the uh, theme, uh, the uh, overture to the uh, musical Oklahoma. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so we did cover this. And uh, so apparently the... Uh, airline was able to, well, they got a, uh, a judgment for $9,118. Who knows if they'll ever see a penny of it. That's true. I, I like the fact that he managed to pick a flight that had two air marshals on it. Two yes, good air going. marshals. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to misbehave with a flight, try and pick one. <laughs> no, no. Shouldn't suggest that. But, but Yeah, that this is not, not an official uh, public service announcement from the uh, no, APG. No, no. Not an endorsement. <laughs> not but, an endorsement. But not the ideal flight for him to mess about on. No. No. All right. Well, that's it from our news folder. Thank you, Liz, for compiling all those stories for us. And now might be a good time for us to move on to the best part of the show, which, of course, is your great feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with the first item in our feedback folder. And uh, you'll remember from last week's show, uh, we had uh, the, uh, the Mike Dell, the... Air Systems, uh, what do we call him? Um, he was a Wizzo, I think, on an F-111, a uh, navigator slash weapon systems operator. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure exactly what the designation is, but anyway, he served proudly in the USAF. And he is also an expert podcaster, and we talked about some of his great podcasts in the last episode, and you'll find that in last week's and this week's episode show notes. And he had some 
audio feedback for us to listen to regarding navigation. And uh, this week's is going to be the art of navigation. So take it away, Mike. The ancient art of navigation. Navigation is one of humanity's most ancient arts, and throughout its long history, it has been spurred by a myriad of technological advances. Before humans settled down to raise crops, they were hunters and gatherers, wandering endlessly in search of food, and even after they learned how to farm and domesticate animals, some continued to wander, to expand their territory, and to make war on their neighbors to trade with distant communities or simply to see what was beyond the next hill. In the beginning, it was simple. They followed the herds that provided food and clothing or sought sources of fish and edible plants. In time, they learned how to follow established routes, identify landmarks along the way, and even sketch crude maps. Today, we call the technique pilotage, and navigation students still learn it. Soon, they found more sophisticated points of reference. Some discovered that the sun, the moon, and the stars followed a predictable path through the heavens. Knowing where they would be in a given time, a traveler could set his course accordingly. Today's students also learn that skill as celestial navigation. Even in the early times, technology provided tools to make travel simpler and safer. The mysterious lodestone, always pointing in a given direction, became an invaluable aid to navigation. This bit of magnetized iron ore was later imprisoned in a circular box and became the compass that still guides today's travelers. An optical device, at first no more complicated than a tube attached to a scale for measuring angles, made the task of sighting the stars more accurate. The device evolved into the sextant, still a basic tool of many mariners and flyers. Mathematics contributed to the art of navigation in countless ways. It gave travelers the mean to translate their star sightings into lines on a chart and to find their position by calculating where the lines crossed. It provided tables to show the effects of magnetic variations on compasses anywhere in the world. It produced the system for calculating the effect of winds on a vessel's speed and course. That system is basic to the technique of dead reckoning, still one of the first skills taught in navigation schools. In time, mathematics and mechanics joined forces to produce devices to simplify calculations. As early as the 1600s, the slide rule was providing instant answers to problems that had taken hours to work out mathematically. Three centuries later, aerial navigators still use a circular slide rule to solve wind, speed, and course problems. If technology has eased the burden of the navigator through the ages, however, it has also increased the demands on them. Early vessels, powered by sails, moved slowly and at the mercy of the winds. By the early 19th century, steam power had freed the mariners from the tyranny of the winds in one sense, but increased the need for accurate navigation. Wind no longer gave ships their power, but still affected their speed and course. A knowledge of the weather became more important than ever to the navigator trying to make a beeline to a destination. Accurate charts, careful plotting and the ability to track one's position also gained importance. If faster ships tasked the skills of the navigator, however, the invention of the airplane would give him a whole new set of problems. Flying placed him in a new three-dimensional environment. A land traveler moves over solid ground with nothing but terrain to impede him. A mariner travels partly through the water 
with its tides and currents, and partly through the air with its own influences, but the flyer moves entirely through a body of air that shifts almost constantly and takes the vessel along with it. Aerial navigation was no great problem at first. Of course, on their first flights, the Wright brothers couldn't stay aloft long enough to get beyond the sight of the places that they took off. By 1909, however, the Army had laid down specifications for a flying machine that could stay aloft for an hour and fly a set course at a speed of at least 40 miles an hour. The Wright satisfied the endurance requirement by flying circles over five miles. Lieutenant Benjamin Foulis, one of the Army observers at the Wright trials and an experienced mapmaker, laid out the course from the Army post at Fort Myer, Virginia, to Shooter's Hill in Alexandria. He had a captive balloon raised at the hill and another about midway on the course. Foulis later, a pilot and chief of the Air Corps, made his first flight as an observer navigator on that trial. In effect, the Army had a navigator before it had any trained pilots. Most navigation was done by pilots in those days, either flying alone or riding with another pilot as an operator. The range of planes was limited. Unless they ran into unexpected bad weather, they were rarely out of sight of the ground. Army flyers began to draw their own aerial maps. A compass was the main navigation instrument. Railroad tracks were a good ground reference, and as flying became more popular, arrows pointing to the nearest towns began to appear on barn roofs. When pilots became hopelessly lost, they could let down in a farmer's field, ask directions, and take off again. Unfortunately, this informal approach to navigation had its cost in planes and pilots. Many of the early fatalities occurred when flyers got lost and either ran out of gas or crashed trying to land to get their bearings. In any case, airplanes weren't going to be very useful if they were to fly only by day in perfect weather. Just being able to fly was not enough. To be effective, a pilot had to be able to get to his destination and return in one piece. As usual, technology was rising to the occasion. In 1911, the gyro compass appeared. By 1913, gyros were being used in automatic pilot system that would free flyers from the tedium of long flights and give them time to check their maps without going into a dive. In 1914, pilots began taking radios aloft to track ground stations. In the 20s, airways were lighted by electric arc beacons. Radio directional beacons followed, allowing flyers to home in on singles with their airborne radios. In the mid-30s, Major Ira Esker flew coast-to-coast blind, using only his radio and a cockpit instrument to navigate. By then, navigation had been refined to a full-time job in itself and a job of specialized crew members. Since World War II, whole generations of electronics have been born, grown up, and married into the new family of gadgets called computers. Modern inertial navigation systems used the latest electronic capabilities and technology of the mid-1800s, which gave us the direction-setting gyroscope. Told where it is at takeoff, the INS can remember every change in direction and altitude and give an accurate fix on its position hours later. In seconds, it can make the kind of calculations that human navigators needed hours to perform. Future systems would be able to do celestial navigation, not from the stars, but from man-made satellites in permanent orbit. Lasers would soon completely replace moving gyroscopes, and computers already do battle with other computers in a whole new world of electronic warfare. Navigation students now graduate as specialists on a specific weapon system. For all the technology at their disposal, however, they begin their training by learning the same skills that brought explorers to America centuries ago, and they still come in handy when computers break down.
Wow. Okay. That, ab- <laughs> that ended quite abruptly. Thank you, Mike Dell, for that uh, wonderful piece of audio feedback regarding the art of navigation. Again, he was reading uh, the work of uh, a gentleman uh, that uh, was penned about 30 years ago, from what I remember, in an air safety magazine uh, for the U.S. Air Force. And uh, It's lovely to go back and hear the uh, the origins of a lot of this and just remember that uh, in, the, in its simplest form, uh, you know, working out how to get from A to B in, in, in the atmosphere just requires a, um, in a triangle of forces, uh, which can be simply drawn out on a piece of paper as long as it's to scale. You don't need any special equipment. In fact, the back of the old uh, uh, Dalton computer, uh, what was the Air Force One called? Nick, you never got the Dalton. That's why you ended up with a navigator on F4. <laughs> <laughs> well, the back of it is uh, that semi-transparent piece of uh, plastic uh, and all the scales that slide through it. Um, when you uh, mark out your courses and the, put the winds and uh, uh, your speed on that, it, it's just simply uh, a triangle of, uh, of velocities that you could easily do on a piece of paper, but that's just a, a handier way for a pilot to do it. So it's all good stuff. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, Mike uh, keeps his own lodestone hanging on a piece of string somewhere at home so he can navigate around. That sounds like a personal question. You have to ask him <laughs> yourself. But uh, Mike, Richard King, you don't there. have to respond to that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I feel no obligation. Yeah, no. says HR. Um, yes, she's always trying to keep on. Now yeah, it's not the right phrase. Nice wine. But um, yes, thank you for the wine. Uh, this is. Um, uh, Yellowtail, uh, was it a Cabernet? Uh, no, I think it's a Merlot. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, cheers. It's smooth, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Cheers, folks. Cheers. Cheers. What's that one, Steph? An empty glass of water. Hmm. That's Steph's favorite is, uh, session, right? It is. It's the uh, Noda Par 4 Session IPA. And what time Are is it there? Are really in, uh... drinking beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, what time is it there, Steph? 830. 830. 830 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and here I was loathing the fact that I didn't have a Bloody Mary mix to make a Bloody Mary this morning. So I'm drinking water. You're drinking beer at 830 in the morning. You can see why we love stuff. Water in my fridge. <laughs> we love stuff. We love stuff. Oh, my God. I'm, <laughs> I, an amazing I really woman. am now impressed. I really am. I mean, it takes a lot to impress me, and I'm really impressed. <laughs> oh. Wow. Well, I already, I already, uh, you know, prepared my intestines with a healthy breakfast of McDonald's and some oh, right. burrito <laughs> and a soda to start the day. She's just acclimating so to the the British. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one, one o'clock there. By Friday next week, I'll have to be on uh, British summertime. So, figure might as well start moving that clock forward now. Might as well. <laughs> and I and I had string cheese and an avocado. I'm so. I'm that sounds good, actually. That actually that sounds not doesn't bad. actually. Delicious. That sounds disgusting. Really? That sounds good to me. What, what? string cheese? Really anyway. Yeah, me too. String, string cheese. cheese is mozzarella, and uh, mm-hmm. an avocado is well, an avocado. <laughs> mozzarella and I'm trying to be healthy, the, the, folks. The string cheese is like a it's like an, a, a tubular look. Yeah, and you can like pull it apart in yeah, little and strings. Just, yeah, it strings. Okay, apart. sounds like chewing gum. Mm, no, no, it's quite tasty. Actually, it it's loaded with a lot of protein. Does it have any cheese in it? Yes, it's, it's uh-huh. all cheese. <laughs> I mean, does it have any dairy product in it? Yeah. All it's real dairy cheese. Product. Oh, okay. It's real cheese. Yeah. It's mozzarella. That's pretty I'm rare. So things I learned today. Yes. I'm not familiar with string cheese in the UK. Huh. Apparently not. We need to bring bring cheese. <laughs> some bring, spring cheese. Spring cheese. <laughs> I'm sure that'll 
survive on the flight quite well. Actually, it would if I ran with an ice pack, but I don't yeah. know if the ice pack would make it through. You know, those those uh, individually sealed packages of string cheese, I think we'll probably keep for yeah. days without refrigeration. Mm. No, that needs to be refrigerated. Okay. It does need Hours. to be refrigerated. Oh, really? I but I think I can pack that. it. Maybe that's why I, had, I was sick to my stomach a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I would explain it. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, when the world comes to an end, uh, am I right in thinking the only food left will be Twinkies? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the only life left will be cockroaches. Cockroaches. Do they like Twinkies? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it won't matter because we're not going to be here. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the item number two in the feedback folder. And... Who would like to volunteer to do this one? Nige, I think that this would be a good one. I, I still can't uh, see Sarah. What a lame far excuse. Away, yeah. he, he is, he I don't have ever Nige. Right. Nick will do it. Nick. Okay, this is, uh, this is from Christian. The impact of the lack of flight instructors. So uh, he says, hi, PG crew. I recently listened to uh, episode uh, 326 in your discussion, discussion about uh, pilot shortage and the lack of CFIs. As a current student pilot surrounded by a large group of student pilot peers uh, and an employee of a Part 135 carrier, I can tell you that the pilot shortage is absolutely here in nasty force. Oh, I'm not quite sure. Oh, the not. nasty force. Yeah, right. My flight school simply cannot get flight instructors. I live in a city of a million people and almost all of the flight schools here are short staffed, no matter how well they pay. Yes, I know this is anecdotal evidence, but there are simply not enough talented instructors in the U.S. Uh, does he say what city this is? Perhaps it's a very unpopular city. I don't know. I don't think he does say. Uh, maybe he has told us in the past. But, okay. Do you know? Population of a million people, that's it's a significant sized city. Yeah. Yeah, but it might be somewhere living in a swamp. So all the pilots go, Ooh, I don't want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure what to say. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, yeah. you left. Hey, Nick, you left me speechless. <laughs> well, I mean, pilots are smart people. They don't want to go and live somewhere nasty, do they? Well, can I tell you that a, a city of a million people is Boston, Massachusetts? Really, only a million. I mean, there's there's eight hundred thousand oh, in Charlotte. Yeah, in, in Charlotte, and but they're nice uh, places. People like going there. So you're not going to be short of flight instructors, are you? Where's Massachusetts? I don't know. It's, it's the name. first colony in the colony. The overboard. Yeah. All right. So um, he carries on. Um, uh, the 135 carrier I work for flies excellent aircraft with state-of-the-art avionics and pay is competitive with the regional airlines. Wow. Uh, we still have trouble getting enough pilots and are short-staffed very often. It's simply very, very difficult to get a good, experienced pilot. So most of our pilots are taken from flight schools, even if uh, CFIs aren't going to be, uh, oh, sorry, aren't going to the 121 airlines immediately. They are coming to the 135 carriers because we often pay better and often have better aircraft than flight schools. This leaves more flight schools without instructors. Now, of course, uh, anyone outside the States won't really understand what 135 and one. 21 carriers are. In fact, I'm not absolutely certain. So can someone help me out? I think that uh, Dana can help us out. Absolutely. 135 is a charter, um, and they can do uh, 
uh, medical uh, airlifts. They can fly passengers, uh, you know, the rich and famous. They can call up and talk to uh, somebody like NetJets. That's 135. Um, and 121 would be airlines. Very, okay. Thanks very, very much, Dana. Simply put. I filled in a hole of my knowledge, a hole in my knowledge. Uh, because of the lack of flight instructors, learning to fly has reached a cost of at least $200 an hour. I'm not too sure how the lack of instructors puts the price up. Is it just that they're... The attempt to kind of keep up and keep their rates high to keep them, but it's apparently not enough to keep them from leaving. Oh, okay. I'm guessing. That's yeah. his point. Yeah. Either that or... Yeah, absolutely. Um $200 an hour. Okay. I've seen the cost of learning to fly uh, prohibit many of my peers from continuing their training. Well, that is just a cry and shame, isn't it? Um, that's just my take on the whole issue as someone who works in the industry. Well, that's a very valuable um, point of view, I think. Uh, and, you know, someone who actually works in the industry uh, has a very valid um, thing, you know. Uh, stuff to say about it. I look forward to hearing more of your opinions. Uh, thanks for uh, the great show, guys. Uh, P.S. iPhone X optimization of the APG app would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. We're going to get right on that. What's an iPhone X? Uh, iPhone 10. Oh, this guy's What's earning too much money. What is he? Yeah. Yeah. You can afford an iPhone 10? Whoa. She's a doctor. Come yeah. on. Yeah. And, yeah. and whatever else she does for money on the side. We're not going to no, go no. into that. But well, yeah. You promised we wouldn't. But, but <laughs> Christian can afford one as well, yeah. obviously. So, I don't know. They're obviously paying him too much. Uh, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. Um, Lucrative part 135. Yeah. Christian, if we had someone who knew what they were doing with our iPhone apps, uh, we, we'd get right on that. But... <laughs> It's actually kind of, a minor miracle that they're still working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to take the job on, then uh, <laughs> yeah, please, please, help. yeah. And then you can optimize to your heart's content. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, there was a, a nice note here in the uh, chat room regarding uh, the pilot shortage. Uh, Rebecca Saylor, a lovely lady, I interrupt my cleaning again to announce that my niece's husband has been accepted into pilot training with the U.S. Air Force. Yay! So my family is doing its part to solve the pilot shortage. Good, good. Yeah. Excellent. Congratulations. Yeah. I did receive a uh, flyer in the mail yesterday from GoJet Airlines for pilot recruitment. So we offer wonderful signing bonuses. Come fly with us. I was like, I'm a, like a thousand hours short of meeting your requirements. But well, cool. go get them, Steph. Only a thousand hours. That's not bad. Yeah. Not bad. All right. Ever thought of being a flying doctor in uh, Australia? That could be fun. Good, couldn't it? With no, then we're not going to be able to. A lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> then we're not going to be able to have stuff on the show anymore. So oh, yeah, we up. can. We'll just have to have it at a very strange time of the oh, day. Okay. <laughs> Which is... You'll have to do the show in the middle of the night. Yeah. Okay. For stuff, we'd Made do it. Small sacrifice. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Number three, Captain Adam. Uh, hello, Captain Nick and crew. Captain Adam of Acme North Defense here. I've been catching up on episodes I missed over the last couple of months and heard you guys talking about the RAAF Hornets coming to the RCAF, uh, specifically one that may have sentimental significance to you, Captain Nick. Please let me know specifics of this special Boeing. What? 
Uh, let me re read that, uh, <laughs> please. Let me know the specifics of this special Boeing it's and any others Boeing. that you want to see. What becomes of them, and I will do my best. Adam, please wash your mouth out with soap. <laughs> McDonald Douglas. If I think he just did this on purpose. He's thinking, I'm you just going to stir the pot, uh, ruffle somebody's feathers. Well, he's, I'm there ruffled, I promise you. I know. I, I can see that. <laughs> Anyway, he continues, uh, if they end up in Western Canada and Acme Red ever takes you to Edmonton, Alberta, uh, Charlie Yankee Echo Golf, let me know, and we can probably take a look in person. Well, the other one, I see, I don't know the MSN number, so I, I can't give you um, the number it will have um, identifying it, because I guess when they sell them to Canada, they'll put their own serial numbers on the fuselage, and you may not be able to work out what they had on them when they were in the Australian Air Force. I don't know. It'll but be any... quite simple, actually, Nick. Yeah? They'll line them all up in a line, and the bent one is your one. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Bam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so A21-4 was uh, the aircraft I had my name on, the, the fourth uh, Hornet to uh, uh, fly in Australia uh, on their inventory. Uh, and if that one makes it over to Canada, yeah, I almost think about going to Edmonton, especially just to see it. That'd be great. But please don't pay, paint that stupid cockpit on the belly. What an idiot idea that was. I thought that was... You know, the Canadians uh, have this idea that in order to uh, make it harder to work out whether the aircraft is top up or bottom up, they'd paint a black cockpit on the fuselage. They then painted it, or the bloke who thought of the idea, and uh, wanted to charge any other Air Force that tried to do it a lot of money, but no one else took them up on it anyway. I... I'm not sure of the advantage of doing well, it. Well, it's, it's supposed to make it harder to work out whether the guy's pulling into you or pushing away from you. And this guy, I really don't think it's up to oh, much, but there you go. I see. Okay. That's a crazy idea. I'm sure the Canadian Air Force think it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, speaking of wonderful, Dr. Steph, would you please take our fourth item in the I feedback would folder? be happy to. This is from Ben. He's uh, referring back to the article that we did about um, the medical incident on a United flight a while back. He says, the doctor on board article is surely just attention grabbing on the part of the lawyer of the passenger who is suing to see if they can get some money out of United. Maybe they didn't have appropriate travel insurance. There has to be some bad decisions to be made sometimes. For example, Trans-Pacific. Sometimes you are two or more hours from a suitable place and you really want to divert to some island in the middle of nowhere. Also, the Qantas flight from Sydney to Johannesburg routinely goes way south and is over the ice of Antarctica. Can't see McMurdo being able to take a 747-400, but it's all a matter of actual medical issue versus the practicality of good level care and the cost of the divert which in some cases not only means the divert, landing, ground handling, etc., but also what if the crew times out? Hotels for 250 plus people? Same as you'd get in any ER. You won't get seen first if you have a broken arm. Uh, at work, uh, for an unnamed air traffic organization, I often see crowds, or crews, excuse me, who report a sick passenger on board but hold short of declaring a pan for it. So in such cases, we process them as per normal. Okay, we won't hold them up if we can help it, but technically there is no upgrade in priority. This has two benefits. It discourages the, quote, sick passengers who are miraculously cured as soon as the aircraft gets to the gate. 
no, seriously, one airline tried it twice uh, to bust the Sydney curfew before their managers got told very firmly not to cry wolf again. And it means that a genuine case where you really need to get on the ground ASAP is pushed to the front of the line and given as much track shortening and high-speed cruise descent as is possible. You get the highest priority, but we still have to keep you safe. So it's used sparingly and appropriately by crews rather than the old days where we'd handle every sick passenger as an emergency regardless. And that is from Ben. Yeah, good points there. Um, you know, definitely coming from an air traffic perspective as well. Um, yeah, you, you don't want to cry, cry wolf all the time, certainly. But, um, you know, that's why there's a lot of coordination that goes on on the part of crew members, medical volunteers on board, medical uh, personnel on the ground who coordinate with the uh, air crew to determine the actual levels of severity of the illness of the passenger in question. But lots of factors, certainly. Yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd mention that the Sydney curfew is uh, um, a time, it's a restriction time uh, in Sydney airport um, that prevents aircraft landing. And if you bust that curfew, it is a, uh, it's pretty heavy karma. They they take that quite seriously. And there's, there's the potential of a large fine, which uh, you don't want to incur. So the only way to bust it really is to get some sort of priority at 6am, as I recall. Exactly. The Sydney curfew. Did you get on a Sydney? Market? I didn't go to Sydney. No, okay. I think it's 6 a.m. Um, and, uh, of course, like a lot of airfields with a curfew like that, when they've got overnight flights coming down there, um, they all try and time their arrival just at the end of the curfew, and you usually end up with a huge queue of airplanes all trying to land at one minute past six anyway. That's uh, the Sydney curfew. Wow. <laughs> really, Dana? <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly what I thought. <laughs> Sorry. So not, not a good idea to try and gain priority by pretending to have a sick passenger on board. Yeah, it, that's a little unethical, I think. Un unethical. Mm -hmm. Not not professional. Mm -mm. Not at all. All right. Well, thank you, Ben, for the help with the follow-up on uh, that particular... Yeah, and, and Richard says... Uh, uh, Percentage uh, accuracy ratings just gone sky high because it is 6 a.m. Okay. That curfew. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yes. We're well above 50% then. Okay, let's for not today. say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to end the show. Thank show. you, everybody, for showing up. I'll see you on out. End on a high. <sighs> All right. Oh, look, Nick, there are a couple of questions for Nick and the crew. Uh-oh. And, uh, and this is from Nick, by the way, Nick Wilson in the U.K., and uh, is Nick here with us? Not you, but the other Nick Wilson. He's know. in the UK. He, he, he should be he's here. He's in the country. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, he says, uh, I'm currently on holiday in the beautiful Lake District of England, and the RAF fast jets have been training overhead all day. The view from up there must be simply amazing. Question, did Captain Nick do any fast jet training in the Lake District? And if so, was it a good area to fly in? Well, I'm going to bring Nigel on this as well because he's, uh, you know, did more low flying than I did in the UK, uh, probably. Um, when we were based at RAF Valley doing uh, fast jet instruction on the Hawks, we would regularly use uh, the Lake District as a, a low flying training area because it was nice and close to us. Um, from recollection, though, uh, not as dramatic uh, as Scotland, where the the hills aren't a little more rounded and not quite as uh, you know jagged and uh, impressive looking. However, there are some beautiful lakes up there, and it's obviously gorgeous it however it is 
um, it's, it's peppered with uh, noise-sensitive areas because there's a lot of tourism up there, a lot of towns and things. So um, sometimes it was hard to find a straight line to go between all the little red dots on your low-flying map and avoid all those areas. So, so personally, I preferred Scotland. Uh, that was the area I spent most of my flying career, certainly on the Phantom. In And, and Nigel also uh, flew out of Lossiemouth up there. What do you reckon, Nigel? Yeah, well, that's question two. So you, for once you're ahead of yourself. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, I think Nick and I were discussing this uh, with uh, Captain James the other day. And um, <laughs> I got I'm Nigel. That. He's Nev. That's Nick. <laughs> and, uh, I like we, James. That's nice. <laughs> and we, were, we agreed that Scotland really is uh, fantastic, uh, no doubt about it. And I agree with Nick that... You have to avoid all the tourist areas and what have you and where the towns. So the Lake District is fantastic, um, beautiful, but it was limiting for us, whereas Scotland was a bit more of a free-for-all. And when they become independent, then I guess it'll be even more free, won't it? Oh, they might charge us to low-fly up there, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And where's that uh, Mac Loop, you call it, a Mach Loop? Is that in, uh, that's in Wales, right? Yeah, that's right. That's uh, about a third of the way down uh, Wales. Um, uh, and it's actually, the the full name is, and I'm just going uh, to do it properly now because he corrected me earlier. Hudslicks. Oh, <laughs> Bless you. Just back my Does, up. Do we have some Kleenex here? Just thought we had a windshield on that mic. <laughs> yeah, good that. That Might have to sterilize that. I know, I'm going to have to wash that. So. Sorry, Dana, you're trying to uh, slag me off. Could you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, was that lunch coming back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's the name of a Welsh village that uh, nestles in uh, uh, part of that um, sequence of valleys. And the, the lovely thing about that series of valleys was it forms a, uh, you know, almost a continuous circuit. And you can, uh, and it's the ideal um, proportions for you to demonstrate and practice uh, going through a sequence of S turns uh, and teaching the student how to um, look around the uh, the hard corner that's coming up to make sure there's no aircraft coming the other way, to pull into the apex of the turn hard, brush the canopy against uh, the rocks on the apex, um, and then uh, dive down into the next valley, prepare themselves for the direction of the next turn, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you get into a lovely sort of slalom sequence going around there. But of course, because it's such a good series of valleys for training in, that's why everyone has taken the opportunity to uh, get up on the rocks overlooking the valleys and photograph and take some very impressive pictures uh, of the fast jets going down there. Mm. All right. And the uh, second question that uh, Nick asks uh, what is your favorite area to fly around in or commercial route to fly in terms of the scenery? Well, funnily enough, um, Dubai has some amazing scenery, not in uh, that end of uh, the Gulf, but going over Iran. Uh, Iran is an incredibly remote-looking place, uh, uh, a lot of it, that we fly over. And um, it's a time of the day sometimes with the sun just getting above the horizon or just setting, and you get that low uh, angle of light against uh, the um, amazing terrain underneath you, which lights it up and brings it out into a real 3D. So that's always, for me, photographically, certainly, I'm always there looking and down and uh, going, wow, isn't that absolutely fantastic? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, there's an area right at the bottom of China that's 
over towards uh, the western border and um, that's just fantastically beautiful and it's so deserted and it's got these rolling hills that's good and uh, particularly in the early morning like Nick says and we always seem to be flying into the sun in the early morning over them and the other place I like is uh, near the Stans, Tazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan around there the, the mountains are just beautiful and fabulously so we both like mountains really don't we i was going to add my vote to the uh, mountains as well and my experience uh flying in the western united states especially the uh, i think the most beautiful ranges uh in the u.s or the range are the cascades uh, they're uh, a younger mountain range and they're very jagged uh mountains and peaks and it's uh, beautiful and it's also part of a long line of uh, volcanic uh, formations along the uh, western United States. So, used to knew all, know all of them when I used to fly out there quite often, but it's been a while. But it's a beautiful place. Still a good job. Well, I'll have a, a dissenting view then. Um, for me personally flying, it's along the coast. So anywhere where land meets meets water, especially the Outer Banks of North Carolina is just beautiful. And um, But beyond that, definitely I agree with you guys on the mountains <laughs> and definitely the southwest part of the United States. Yeah. So getting into more like the Red Rock territory. Yeah, that is pretty. Um, Dana, how about you? What, what would you say is your most favorite part of the uh, world to fly over? Well, of course, I have a very limited view because I've only flown in one part of the world, and that is pretty much the Rocky Mountains east. Um, so I'm. Uh, Real so prejudice to my Nebraska? home. In Nebraska is absolutely beautiful if you like flat and nothingness. Um, but no, I, I would have to, I'd have to actually say, and this is going to be very selfish, I think. And I love flying around the Northeast. And the reason why I love flying around the Northeast is you have actually a combination of uh, the beauty of um, the unique um, landmass be below you. You can see, uh, the Cape, which is a, a, a unique, on a beautiful day, you can see the Cape from when you're flying over Boston, and then you can see up into the White Mountains. And one of the most famous mountain, Mount Washington, which is up there in the White Mountains, uh, is, I think, is the uh, highest recorded wind speed on the world, in the world, uh, ever. So um, it's a, a unique place. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of storms uh happened to uh, come over the top of that coming up the East Coast. And uh, I just uh, think the entire Northeast is a beautiful place to fly, especially, especially during the fall time of the year when everything is churning colors. You've got uh, quite a contrast between the ocean. you got the uh, Northeast uh, landmass and then, of course, the mountains. So it's just a unique area to fly. And a lot of, actually, believe it or not, a lot of U.S. airline pilots prefer not to fly into the New York in the Boston area because it's such a mess. But it's a busy uh, it's a be- place. It's a very busy place, but it's a beautiful place to fly. Yeah, it is. Nev, you do a lot of travel. Um, anything, uh, any region of the world in particular that you just find the scenery breathtaking? I think the Swiss mountains take a bit of beating, actually. Um, mm. Every time I've flown over to Geneva and that part of the world, um, especially on a, a nice, crisp, bright day, we can see the snow on the tops of the mountains. Uh, something very cathartic and, and calming about it all, I must say. Spectacular scenery there. And, um, yeah, I don't get to do that as often as I might like to these days. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to going back there again soon, hopefully. Excellent. 
Well, Nick, thank you so much. Nick Wilson. You're welcome. Oh, in the UK. Nick oh. I knew I'd have to Fair specify enough. the Nick I was speaking to. Thank you for your feedback and uh, generating that uh, great discussion regarding scenery and uh, low level uh, military flight routes. Uh, number six, Liz sent this in. Liz, who's Liz? I don't know. Someone very specialized by the sounds of it. Yes. So, near and dear to the hat. Uh, I'm sure that the Border Force agents see all sorts of interesting things. This is one of them. Oh, this is going to be uh, taken on by... Sorry, Dana. I was starting to wonder. Well, I didn't uh, realize uh, <laughs> until I started reading this that this is the one that you said you wanted to do. So I, uh, yes, because okay, I'm going to take everything back. <laughs> okay, well, here we go. You already read the first line, so I'll go ahead and on from there. A man trying to smuggle 19... Raptor eggs. I did say raptor eggs. Oh, very good. Yes, raptor. Of course. Raptor. That's, uh, interesting. So this is kind of like a Jurassic Park type of episode here. In a belt around his waist was tripped up by security at London Heathrow Airport uh, because of the two eggs that hatched. The 56-year-old man was en route to, from South Africa to Ireland. On two, did I say that right? Ireland? Not even probably even close. I butchered the craziness Ireland. out of that. You can't pronounce Ireland. You're from Boston. How can you not be able to <laughs> you pronounce, have to know Ireland? How to pronounce that? Ireland. 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 It's an island. So, anyways, <laughs> Tuesday, June 26th, when the presence of the adorable, cuddly, they say birds here, but I think it's raptors, of prey made themselves known. And there are a couple of uh, photographs of these cuddly little creatures. And, but they're birds. Uh, they are birds. They're raptors. Yeah. Only kidding. Oh. But uh, anyways, I'm sure Jeff will be nice enough to put those in the show notes. I'll do that. The eggs were South African eagles, in fact, hawks and kites, protected by the Convention of International Trade and Endangered Species. The man was arrested but then released on uh, bail pending additional investigation. So, yeah, if you're trying to smuggle, just don't do it because they just might pop out of your belt. Yeah, don't. Just, just make sure that the birds aren't going to hatch, basically, yeah. if you're going to. And how would you and do that? Wrap them, if you're wrapping around your belt, you're now an incubator oh, because yeah. you're keeping them nice and warm. You're a mama. You're a mama. Nev? Yes, well, obviously, there's a, a nature update required as, as part of the APG show. And uh, where we are here in Oxfordshire, there are lots and lots of red kites that you'll see flying around and where I live as well, not not far away. And they were recently uh, released um, and encouraged to breed. And uh, on a very hot uh, and clear day, you'll see them swooping around and uh, absolutely beautiful um, plumage when you see the sun reflecting against them. Beautiful plumage. That's it. Thought I'd just, you know, lead you into that, that next bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, dead parrots. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful plumage, the Norwegian blue. Beautiful plumage. Ah, uh, all right. Uh, thank you uh, for reading that one, uh, Dana and Liz. Thank you for pointing. When I saw raptor, I was thinking like a what? What is that thing called? A velociraptor? Uh, one of the prehistoric? Oh yeah, dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. Dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, and then I thought she was must be talking about the mad dog or something. But <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. That's the reason why I wanted to read that one, Captain Jeff. Ah, I see. Talking about our bird. It was bird special. It had a special significance for Dana and I. Yes, we did. All right. Number seven, David. Captains and doctors, 
just a bit of brief feedback, which is more suited probably to show notes. Okay, maybe we should just skip it then and we'll just put this in the show. No, we need to talk about it. Uh, the BBC recently released an article discussing the stolen Herc that featured in Plain Tales, uh, the C-130. The article is from a slightly different perspective and is interesting reading. Uh, was the newlywed mechanic who stole a plane shot down? That was the uh, title of the article in BBC News, and the link will be in the show notes. And we have it here. And in uh, 1969, you'll remember at the height of the Cold War, a homesick, hungover mechanic in the U.S. Air Force stole a plane from his base in East Anglia and set off for Virginia. Did I say that right? East Anglia? Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, nearly two hours later, he disappeared suddenly over the English Channel. Did he simply crash or was he shot down? Emma Jane Kirby has been scouring the archives to find out. I've known for some time that 23-year-old Sergeant Paul Meyer called his wife from the cockpit of his stolen Hercules aircraft. Jane Goodson, uh, as she's now called, told me this herself when she spoke to me from her home in Virginia. Honey, he had told her triumphantly, waking her from a deep sleep, I got a bird in the sky and I'm coming home. What I didn't realize then, however, was that the last 20 minutes or so of their conversation was recorded, and when the transcript of the re that recording was sent to me, I will admit that I sat down and wept. By the time the tape recorder was rolling, Meyer's jubilation and bravado had left him. The cold reality of what he had done and what lay ahead had hit him squarely. And then the transcript is here. Uh, honey, I believe those uh, that they may help you find out where you are Okay, maybe by reading what's in front of you there, they can help you. You shouldn't have undertaken this by yourself, honey. That's a big responsibility. Being a navigator, pilot, everything like this yourself, honey. And then he says, I'll be all right, over. And his wife says, Paul, darling, can you hear me? And he says, you just barely, you just barely, darling. And then she says, can you hear me, sweetheart? I sure wish I was up there with you. He says, I can just barely hear you now, honey. Over. Wife says, did you take out the trash last week? <laughs> Shit. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Aren't you getting... <laughs> I just spoiled the whole ambiance. <laughs> oh, it's sounding so romantic. And, uh, <laughs> so nice. <laughs> okay, back to the story. Aren't you getting nearer to me, honey? or nearer to home, honey, why don't you ask the fellow to find out where you are? Maybe they can help you. And uh, so um, he says, well, honey, I'll be really honest with you, he admits. I kind of think I made a big dang wrong mistake here. I feel like the biggest dodo around here right now, over. Jane, clearly petrified, has to still her own nerves as she tries to reassure her panicking husband. You're the most wonderful thing in the world, you hear? She says, honey, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to fly you right in here, okay? Over. And then Meyer's commanding officer tries to cut across the line. Sergeant Meyer, Sergeant Meyer, this is Colonel Kingery. Do you read me? He says. It's Colonel Kingery from Mildenhall. Over. Alone in the 37-ton four-engine transport plane, he was not qualified to fly. Meyer, unsure of his direction, unsure of what he was doing, tells his wife desperately, everything will be all worth it if I can just kiss your sweet lips one more time. Over. And Jane, his wife of just 55 days, promises him, you'll get to kiss my sweet lips until we are old and gray in the rocking chairs in Missouri. Over. 20 minutes later, after Meyer had switched the plane to autopilot, the call cuts off. Meyer's final recorded words are, 
I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, that's it. Um, so the article goes on. We'll put the uh, link to it in the show notes about this uh, tragic story and uh, a very poorly thought out idea to steal or take this C-130. Yeah, but single handedly. I mean, he was intoxicated and he was obviously depressed since he'd only just married this lady. He was obviously deeply in love and he'd been posted overseas and couldn't get back um, to see her. Uh, he was also very worried because she was being uh, hassled by her ex-husband and so he was, you know, trying, determined to get home. So um, the the inference in the later part of this is that uh, he was actually shot down. Uh but there's absolutely no evidence to support that. They did, in fact, uh, launch uh, an F-100, I think, out of another USAF base uh, on the U on UK soil, uh, who um, didn't find him. Uh, that was the official report. And they also launched another Herc out of the same base, I think. Uh, he no didn't find him either. Um, so, it, I mean, it was it was at night. They ran over the channel. He wasn't particularly high. It would not have been an easy uh, task to find him anyway. Uh, but uh, because they launched uh, a fighter out, then the, the immediate inference was that the fighter went out there to end the flight any way he could um, rather than bring him home. But uh, that's not the official USAF uh, view. They believed uh, they were going to try and help him and bring the aircraft back to an airfield where he could land it uh, and then uh, you know they would obviously have um, you know they, they would have sorted out the problems I suspect one way or another but uh, um, there's been a great deal of um, speculation uh, without any true evidence I mean they have the transcript and uh, there have been interviews of this poor lady uh, who lost her husband and uh, she uh, firmly in her own mind, I think, believes that uh, the USAF uh, shut him down, but she's no more than her own feelings. She doesn't have any any actual evidence. I see. Yeah, well, you know, I can understand maybe the desire to feel that somebody took her husband's life and not, you know, himself. Yeah, I think that would be perfectly natural. Yeah. Um, but the fact was, he wasn't a trained pilot. He was, he had had some pilot training, but certainly not in the Herc. He was an engineer, uh, and an aircraft that is normally manned by a, uh, a multi crew, uh, with a co pilot, a navigator, and a flight engineer. He was trying to do it all on his himself. It was amazing. He got that far from uh, the base uh, way out into the channel. And he was trying to do the job of four men, and he wasn't qualified to do any of them, really. So uh, it was amazing he got that far. Now, Neil in the chat room says, didn't that F-100 come back empty when it left fully armed? Or is that is there any? No, that's any just that's, that's complete um, speculation. Injection. There's no evidence uh, uh, to say that. Uh, there are people who claim to... Uh, have been in the forces at the time, but there's no way to check whether various Twitter posts and uh, blog posts are actually by people who were genuinely there or whether they're people uh, trying to support a um, conspiracy theory. Well, you know, we do love conspiracy theories on yeah. this show. But on the other hand, there's, you know, it, it is possible um, that they're, they're trying to hide the fact that uh, they engaged him. But uh, no, the official uh, report afterwards said that the pilot of the F-100 failed to find him. All right. Well, 
thank you, David, for the additional information and feedback regarding that uh, wonderful, wonderfully told story about this uh, stolen Hercules 130 aircraft years ago. Um, moving on to uh, number eight, and uh, this seems to be the kind of feedback that um, we are reluctant to play on and, and talk about on the show because it seems to start off is it somewhat negative i don't know um oh afraid so yeah this i was addressed to the complaint department at airlinepilotguy.com mr snodgrass we're a bit worried about him yeah well uh, nev uh, why don't you read this uh, piece of uh, disconcerting feedback yes i don't know about you jeff but often on our podcast we're always having to apologize to listeners for mispronouncing names or offending them yeah um but actually here is an apology to you, sir. Oh. So that's a nice change. Oh, that's good, yeah. And this is from Tarquin. It's titled Unpleasantness. Dear Mr. Nielsen, may I send my apologies to you, sir? My feedback that you read out so beautifully last week appears to have been taken as a cheap way to make a fool of you and your lovely country. Nothing can be further from my mind. It was a valid attempt to oil the mild waters that exist between our fair lands. But going by the reaction of your so-called co-hosts, the medical one and the bearded one, it looks as though I was poking fun at you, sir. Nothing of the kind. It was a genuine attempt to make you fit in like a local. But alas, after the ribbing you received, I fear that this may not be possible. When you arrive in Great Britain... My advice is to avoid Hampshire, particularly a small one-horse town known as Lys, or Less, as people know it. It's full of ruffians and scoundrels. (laughs) It's like a little posh penal colony. My advice would be to seek out a man of near mystical nature, uh, stature. Sorry, He goes by the operational name of Nigel. He's a stout yeoman and has information on a cad and a bounder. I can say no more. So, safe travels, my American friend, and avoid these places at all cost. Launceston, Billericay, Auchtermachty, Onkan, Chlannochen, and many more just waiting to trip up the unwary visitors. Again, I look forward to meeting you at the Aviation Jamboree in Farnborough. Yours sincerely, Tarquin Wilberforce Sinjun Snodgrass, or T-W-S-S, or a.k.a. Ivor. <laughs> now, you know, I think that Ivor was really hoping that I would be reading this. Yeah, I, I was hoping yeah, he, too. Yeah, he threw some, uh, some good ones in Yeah, there. nice yeah. try there. As was my nice. medical colleague. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think you should have a go. Now you've had good. them demonstrate, I think you should have a go at those place names. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why Jeff delegated this item to me, can't you? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your concern uh, that you may have come across as uh, being rude. And uh, I didn't take it that way at all. I know that your your concern for me was at the utmost. So thank you. Yes, and I think my uh, fellow co-host and I feel the same way. However, um, it was a good chance for us to voice our separate opinions from from yours, Tarquin. Yeah, very true. Yeah, or nobody's buying that. <laughs> okay, uh, nine. Cole, update on his aviation progress. My name's Cole, 
and this is the second piece of feedback I've submitted over the years. I'm writing to show my sincere appreciation for the podcast and for all of your efforts. As I myself have not been too active within the APG community, you all have still managed to play a major role in my education and now career. I started listening to the podcast four years ago when I was a student pilot at a Part 141 university in Southern Illinois. Despite your 50% accuracy rating, I've learned a great deal by listening to the podcast, and it has also furthered my love for aviation. With that being said, I wanted to give you guys a quick update. As of April 2018, I received my CFI certificate. I then went on to apply for jobs while starting my multi-engine rating. Much to my surprise, I was offered a job from a company based near my hometown to fly Learjet 40, 45, 70, 75 with only 300 hours. Wow. That's great. Uh, I finished my multi-engine training uh, rating in late May and moved to start my new job the next day. I'm currently at Flight Safety in Tucson, getting a second-in-command type rating in the Learjet. With all this being said, I just wanted to thank all of you for helping me get through these past couple of stressful years. This podcast has helped me in more ways than one, and I hope to see it live on... Nope. This podcast has helped me in more ways than one, and I hope to see it live on for many years to come. Thank you again for all that each and every one of you do. Blue skies and tailwinds. And again, that's from Cole. And Cole, congratulations on your Good attainment job, of sir. the CFI and uh, well working in the multi-engine rating. Yeah. That's awesome. Did he say he had, I'm sorry, I just read it and I can't recall exactly. Did he say he has gotten his multi-engine yet or is he still working on it? He did. He finished it in May and then he started his new job the next day and he's currently working on his uh, second-in-command type rating. Can you imagine now you have 300 hours and you're sitting right seat in a Learjet? That's got to be awesome. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. That's amazing. All right. Well, blue skies and tailwinds to you as well, Cole. And uh, please keep us... Uh, advised as to your progress in your career. I have a feeling that there are a lot of great things yet to come for you. Yeah, I'd love to see some pictures too. That Learjet's a sweet airplane. That's a great idea. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. see any pictures in here, no. Cole. So but I guess now we're a little disappointed in you. <laughs> <laughs> we take back some of the yeah. enthusiasm. Yeah, that applause no, stuff, kidding. forget of that. Of course not. Delete that. Take care of it in post. No, just kidding. All right. Oh, no. Stunned Thai villagers wake up and find a Boeing 747 in, near, in a nearby field. What a nightmare for them. How did that happen? Living next to a Boeing? Oh, God. It is oh, see. Well, there. that wasn't going to be our point. Incidentally, <laughs> if anyone has a spare 747 that they would like to um, donate to parking in a nearby field near Nick's house, I would be happy. Oh, that to would be awesome! All oh, right, okay, I get, I get the way this is going. Hopefully, in the area where you know he walks his dogs regularly. Yeah. I so mean, this to... would be akin to someone uh, building a, a cesspit or a uh, sewage <laughs> processing plant next to your house, wouldn't it? I think the ultimate insult is if I come show up with a license plate holder that says, "If it ain't Bowen, I ain't going." Well, you can try that, Dana. Yeah, and then, then one morning you'll wake up and it'll be attached to your car. No, I'll just I'll just no, drive no. past you at the airport and wave. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, continuing with this amazing story. Imagine strolling through a field and suddenly coming across an enormous jumbo jet parked casually as if it had been a Nissan 
micro? I've never heard of that. That's not something we have in the U.S. Do you have micros or micros? No, they're they're comparing it directly with a really tinny, nasty, horrid car. So I think that's actually a very apt uh, comparison. Thank you very much for your commentary. Uh, You'd probably spend a fair amount of time rubbing your eyes all the while vowing to give the pub a wide berth for a couple of weeks. However, they have pubs in Thailand? I don't think so. Oh, I said there's probably a few expats in there with a few oh, pubs. Okay. Yes, yeah. Nigel's nodding. <laughs> they do. <laughs> he can vouch for it. Not just a few expats. <laughs> <laughs> However, this was indeed the bizarre sight which met puzzled locals in Chai Nat over, a nor- over in northern Thailand. The Boeing 747, complete with purple and gold Thai Airways livery, had appeared overnight as if by some sort of magic. Fascinated villagers hurried to get a closer look at the majestic queen of the skies, posing for pictures with the strange spectacle. However, more adventurous locals were unable to explore further as all the doors, aside from the cargo hold, had been locked tight. The plane had also been stripped of its GENX engines. Now, I don't really think that the 400 had GENX engines. Did they, uh, Nige? The... Uh, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I think those are for the, the more the, modern. I think there's been a push by Boeing to get Boeing's quieter generally so i think those are the new whisper engines they, they do look like they're whisper jets yeah uh, basically if you see the photo in the uh, show notes you'll see that there are no engines actually in the nacelles of this uh, 747 <laughs> we're used to seeing it would be very quiet yeah we are used to seeing Boeing heavy products without any engines, though, Nick, aren't we? No, they're not that heavy. Yes, we are. There's a lot of Boeings kicking around the world without <laughs> engines. Anyway, so, you know. English engines at that. Good point. Uh, this. Um, right moving right along. This story. <laughs> <laughs> they're making every effort, of course, to make this, uh, you know, kind of a, a provocative story. But uh, I think it would have been hard to miss by any of the local villagers the uh, flatbed truck bringing in the 747-400 that was purchased by a gentleman and placed on his uh, field. And I guess it's going to be some kind of a an attraction. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he has in mind. but no, I think he's trying to get rid of a really nasty plague of rats and mosquitoes by parking it there. They'll run They'll away. They'll all run off, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. HR would just like to add that Captain Nick's Opinions do not reflect the opinions of <laughs> yes, the entire thank you. Anyway, what, what is the opposite of an attraction? Distraction. Or uh, a detraction? <laughs> uh, go ahead. What is it? I don't know. I'm, oh, okay. I just need a word. That's okay. the absolute opposite of an attraction. <laughs> Repulsion? Yeah, that'll Might work. Be, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that works. Anyway, I mean, do, do you buy the fact that uh, people woke up in one morning and saw the 747 there? I don't think so. I it just fell from the sky like a lot of them do. <laughs> anyway, Christian, why? Why did you send this to us? And why, Liz, did we put this in our feedback folder? Yeah, Come on. Christian. <laughs> I think it's a great time for plain tales. <laughs> you know what? I think you're right. Let's do it. Good. What's up, good APG idea. crew? It's Nick Herring. Oh, wait. That's not that's not the right one. That's, that's <laughs> Nick Herring. Nick. Uh, the other Nick. Okay, hang on. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. A very British air show. It's that time of the year when migrating APG hosts settle for a while in the Hampshire countryside 
and gather with some of the APG flock at one special location, the Farnborough International Air Show. The show will be a grand affair, with sleek airliners lined up beside the latest military hardware. But following the Shoreham air disaster of 2015, and because of the airfield's position within a densely populated area, the displays will be a little muted. It wasn't always that way. In its early years, the Farnborough air display was dramatic and far less inhibited, but... Then came the show of 1952. John Derry was a British test pilot who flew in times when the test pilots were revered by the public for their skill and bravery. They became household names and their photographs graced the newspapers and their exploits were filmed for the newsreels and shown in every cinema around the nation. John had been born in Cairo and was the son of a famous professor of anatomy at the Royal Egyptian University, who studied such amazing artefacts as Tutankhamun's mummy. After the outbreak of the Second World War, John Derry enlisted in the Royal Air Force as a wireless operator and air gunner. His initial operations were flown in Wellingtons and Hudsons from Wick in Scotland, but he was soon recognised as officer material and remustered as a pilot in 1943. Following his training in Canada, he joined 182 Squadron flying Hawker Typhoons in close air support of the Allied forces in the Low Countries. His second tour of duty was on 181 Squadron, before he returned to 182 as its commanding officer. He did an outstanding job and was given both the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Bronze Lion of the Netherlands. When the war ended, John became the CO of the Day Fighter Leader School at the RAF Central Flying School, flying Tempests, before being demobbed. From the RAF, he went to Vickers Supermarine as an experimental and production test pilot before moving to de Havilland's at Hatfield, where he was to spend the rest of his career. With de Havilland, he was soon going beyond the known limits of flight with the DH-108 tailless fighter, nicknamed the Swallow. The one he flew was the third in that line of experimental aircraft which had been developed after studying the Messerschmitt Me163 Comet, some of which had been brought to the UK after the war. The first that they built used the fuselage of a vampire and was designed to examine the low speed handling characteristics, whereas the second was a high speed prototype with a Goblin 3 turbojet and at 45 degrees a more highly swept wing. With its longer, more streamlined nose, it looked like the futuristic aircraft that it indeed was. Wind tunnel tests had shown that the aircraft had some potentially dangerous flight characteristics, but despite this, de Havilland's son Geoffrey was using it to creep up on the speed of sound. It was late in September 1946 when the young de Havilland began a high-speed dive in it, starting from 10,000 feet. 
As he passed Mach decimal 9, the centre of pressure movement began to force the aircraft into a pitch oscillation that placed enormous loads on the fuselage and wings. They got worse until the aircraft pitched violently into a shock stall. With a bang, the main spar broke at the roots of the wings, causing them to fold back immediately. Without an ejector seat, Geoffrey de Havilland became a casualty of the fight to become the first to break the speed of sound. The failure of the DH-108 delayed the project by a year, and it was John Derry who took up the torch in the third DH-108 Swallow. The aircraft was more substantial and performed better, establishing a closed-circuit record of 605 miles an hour. A little later, in early 1948, John Derry dived the swallow from 40,000 feet, reaching Mach 1, the first British pilot to break the sound barrier, only a few months after Chuck Yeager achieved the same speed in his Bell X-1 glamorous Glenys. As a fascinating aside, it was back in 1942 that the British Air Ministry asked Miles Aircraft Maker to build a supersonic research aircraft. It was to be powered by an after-burning turbojet that would be designed by Sir Frank Whittle and was predicted to reach over 1,000 miles an hour with a climb rate of 24,000 feet a minute. Named the M-52, it mated a bullet-shaped fuselage to very thin, razor-sharp, unswept wings to reduce the wave drag that occurs in transonic flight. Another key feature incorporated into the M-52 was the use of an all-moving horizontal tailplane, as opposed to the fixed tailplanes and moving elevators used on conventional subsonic aircraft. This clearly demonstrated that the Miles engineers understood the problems that conventional tail designs experienced near the speed of sound following the formation of shock waves that reduce control effectiveness. In 1944, design work was considered 90% complete and Miles was told to proceed with the construction of three prototypes. Later that year, the Air Ministry signed an agreement with the United States to exchange high-speed research and data. Miles' chief aerodynamicist, Dennis Bancroft, stated that the Bell Aircraft Company was given access to the drawings and research on the M-52. However, the U.S. reneged on the agreement and no data was ever forthcoming in return. Shortly after the end of the war, with a new Labour government in power, the project was abruptly cancelled. However, when the existence of the project was revealed to the public, the decision to cancel was widely ridiculed. Finally, it progressed in model form, and eventually the concept was proven successful when a scale model reached Mach 1.38 and proved stable in both transonic and supersonic flight. The success of the Miles M52 design would have given the UK a decisive edge in the early days of high-speed flight, but as it was, the development relied on the de Havilland DH-108 instead. 
Following the success of his supersonic flight, the Swallow flights continued with other pilots. Sadly, we will never see a DH-108 in the flesh, as after the loss of Geoffrey de Havilland in the crash of the second aircraft, both the other experimental machines were destroyed, killing their pilots. George Genders lost control during a stall when the aircraft fell into an inverted spin and he abandoned too late for his parachute to open. And Stuart Muller-Roland crashed unexpectedly. It was thought that his oxygen system failed, rendering him unconscious. Even the famous Eric Winkles Brown had a crash in the DH-108, which he described as a killer. By this time, John Derry had moved on to other projects, such as the DH-110, which was to become the Sea Vixen supersonic fighter. The Sea Vixen succeeded the very first generation of jet fighters and was to serve successfully with the Royal Navy into the 1970s, only to be superseded by the fabulous McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom II FG-1. The Sea Vixen was a twin-engined, twin-crew, twin-boomed aircraft with a high tail. It was an all-weather fighter, and the radar operator, known in Navy parlance as the Observer, sat to the right of the pilot inside the dark fuselage with little more than a small porthole to peer out of. The pilot sat to the left under an offset canopy. It was not considered the safest of aircraft, as 55 of the 145 purchased were lost, and of those, more than half were to fatal accidents. However, the Sea Vixen prototype, the DH-110, was very much John Derry's baby, and he displayed it with skill and exuberance. As a display pilot, John gave his name to a manoeuvre known as the Derry Turn, at only 50 feet, he would fly a hard, flat turn, and as his nose came round a point at the crowd, he would reverse into a turn in the other direction, but instead of rolling in the conventional way, upright, he would roll under the long way and through the inverted position. It was four years nearly to the day from when John had first gone supersonic in the dangerous DH-108 Swallow, and he was at the Farnborough Air Show to display the new DH-110. It had been painted pure black and looked dramatic and menacing in the air. It was the final day of the show and the sixth time Derry had got airborne in the new fighter. Previously, everything had gone perfectly, and he had started his display with a supersonic low-level pass across the airfield before putting it through its paces with a combination of aerobatics and low-high-speed passes which deafened and thrilled the vast crowd. There were two prototypes there, the all-black one and a silver one, Whiskey Golf 236. This was the standby aircraft, and he had displayed in it just once before during the six-day show. Having got airborne a while before the start of his display, he climbed Whiskey Golf 236 to high altitude, and then, when his slot started, he descended steeply from high-level accelerating to supersonic speed. 
Looking up to the north, the crowd could see two small white puffs of condensation as the aircraft passed Mach 1. And then, about a minute later, it streaked through the overhead, followed by the famous double supersonic boom of noise, which arrived just after he did. Derry took the aircraft out of sight to the southwest and then passed low over the runway at around 600 knots. Turning hard left, he came around to the north at about 400 feet when, as he crossed the airfield boundary in front of a 120,000-strong crowd and his young wife, small fragments broke away from the aircraft. Now in a climb, the DH-110 abruptly disintegrated into silver confetti. It showered upwards, many leaving smoke trails. The remains of the wings floated down slowly like a leaf. Then there were screams as the two engines shot out of the shower of broken aircraft and the commentator shouted out, My God, look out! A witness standing on the roof of her parents' car saw a massive shining cylinder pass a few feet over her head and then plough into the packed crowd behind on a small hill. There was a shocked silence. Then one or two people screamed, but mostly it was quiet until the injured started crying out. One engine landed harmlessly clear of the spectators, but the other had hit Observation Hill, causing devastation amongst those there. The rest of the airframe landed harmlessly on the other side of the airfield, but the cockpit, with the crew members John Derry and his flight test observer Anthony Richards still inside, fell right in front of the crowd near the runway, injuring more. Ambulances and first aiders rushed to help, and the crowd parted like the Red Sea to let them through. Their efforts seem antiquated to us now, with old ambulances and canvas stretchers, but they did their best. In a moment, 31 lives had been snuffed out. Bodies were covered with newspapers, and a young lad's father knelt down and prayed and wept at the sight. John, Tony, and 29 from within the crowd died that day. The newsreels told of the disaster. Far better not to show the harrowing scenes that followed. The heavy death roll is mute testimony of the dreadful tragedy. But with an attitude to death and destruction that seems foreign to us now, the organisers swept the debris clear of the runway, and with his close friend dead and the wreckage right beside him as he took off, Neville Duke got his Hawker Hunter airborne and did his full display. Almost at once, Derry's friend Neville Duke flew a Hawker Hunter through the sound barrier again. Flying, like progress, must not stop. John Derry was an explorer in an unknown world whose barriers can only be penetrated by such men as he. Their courage and skill have won us great victories in the skies, and they will go on. One spectator there likened his display to a salute to a fallen friend. 
A coach returning to Coventry that evening with the Armstrong Siddeley apprentices on board had nine empty seats. Another remembered being a seven-year-old child there when it happened. On the train home it dawned on him that he was covered in the blood of those who died or were injured. Queen Elizabeth II, the directors of de Havilland and the government all sent messages of condolence and promised that every possible step would be taken to trace the course of the accident. Subsequent investigations found the failure to be the faulty design of the end sections of the main spa, which resulted in the outer ends of the wings shearing off during a high-rate turn. The subsequent shift in the DH-110's centre of lift caused the aircraft to pitch violently, creating forces of over 12 G, resulting in the cockpit and tail sections breaking away and the engines being torn from the airframe. The disaster prompted the introduction of stringent safety measures to protect spectators at air shows, and displays were kept within a well-defined box to ensure an aircraft flying towards the crowd would still fall well short of the public in case of engine failure. Until the Shoreham accident, no member of the public had been killed at a British air show since John Derry's aircraft came apart underneath him. There were many tributes paid to John Derry after the accident, a fine-looking young man with an inspiring personality whose life was snuffed out in the way of many test pilots in those days, too early in his career. The work of the test pilot was well known to the public through popular culture and media, but in a horrifying instant, the unknown dangers they faced on a daily basis were laid out for all to see. Wow, another wonderfully told plain tale, and uh, not a very happy one. Uh, no, um, the, the, those times, uh, experimental test flying was uh, really uh, exactly that. They were experimenting every time they got airborne. And until uh, the full uh, mystery of uh, breaking the sound barrier had been discovered, uh, um, you know, they, they really were um, going, getting airborne and uh, flying into the unknown. They had no idea what was going to happen. And of course, we're only talking a few years after the Second World War. Uh, aircraft development had gone ahead so fast. I mean, they'd gone from uh, big pistons up to twin jets and the next generation. And it was almost that the aircraft uh, designers were going so quickly, they really didn't have time to sit back and uh, work out uh, exactly what the problems might be. Um, so test pilots, uh, they they perished uh, frequently, sadly. Yes, sadly. And then, of course, the innocent bystanders at the uh, the air show um, perishing yeah, as that well. Was just, you know, that, that was just a tragic accident. No one really had considered what might happen if an aircraft uh, did come apart in front of the crowd. And, uh, mm. of course, in this case, uh, all the debris showered onto them. So uh, just awful. Hmm. Pretty amazing the uh, different attitudes though in that day. It's like, well, we'll just clean things up and. and oh yes, the the news uh, the news commentator uh, yeah saying also you know this is just part of 
part of being a test bike, part of life, and the fact that they just swept the runway and <laughs> carried on with the air show. I Carry agree. on. I agree. So very stiff upper lip. Mm -hmm. But then again, we're talking about a wartime generation who had seen death and destruction Worse. for years. Worse. And, uh, you know, they were, they were, I won't say they were immune, but they, they certainly had a different attitude to it than we do. All right. Well, I look forward to the next installment of Plain Tales. I think you're still working on that right now, uh, yes. aren't you? <laughs> it's it's going to be about... Uh, Off you go. It's a monstrous episode. Oh, yeah, it's a monstrous episode. You normally have five good. or six in the can oh. all, all lined up. Oh. Yeah, right. No, it's it's wow. pat panic the night before, usually. <laughs> well, I can tell you, if I were responsible for doing the Plain Tales, you'd never hear one. So... That is the truth. I'm sure you got some good stories in you there, Jeff. Nah, I don't. Not at all. That's why I, I hang around people like you <laughs> who have the great stories. Yeah, we heard a lot of, I've heard a lot of great stories uh, on this trip so far. Oh, yes. Mainly. You should hear about, these guys when they've had a few to drink. Nigel. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm really interested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. Okay, let's see. Let's uh, do this one from uh, Nick. Wait, we already did that. Never mind. Hang on. I think it was another Nick. Yeah, there's so many Nicks. What is going on here? Ah, great generation. Apparently, Nick Herring sent us some audio feedback. So let's take a listen from Nick Herring. What's up, APG crew? It's Nick Herring in California. I just wanted to stop by and thank you guys all for everything you do. I've been listening to the podcast since it began back in the day, and I think it's safe to say that I might have the syndrome, but I'm not even mad about it. Your podcast, as well as all the other fantastic aviation podcasts out there, not only keep us entertained, but inspire us to do more with aviation. In fact, about a month ago, I decided to start my own show, V1 The Podcast, so give it a listen and let me know what you think. If you guys are going to be going to Oshkosh this year, I'll be flying in with my school's Top Hawk Cessna 172, which will be on display at the AOPA booth, so I hope to see you there. Anyway, Dr. Steph, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, and certainly Captain Dana, please don't stop doing what you're doing and keep up the awesome work. Thanks so much. And I'll talk to you guys soon. See ya. Thank you, Nick. And uh, gosh, darn it. I wish we had a little snippet to play of, oh, wait a minute. Hang on. I think we might. Let's, uh, let's take a listen, a little teaser to the V1, the podcast. Hello and welcome to V1, the podcast. It's an all-new aviation podcast centered around all things aviation. My name is Nick Herring, and I will be your host through our journey of this show. So what is this podcast all about? Well, at V1, my goal is to give you a taste of all the different areas inside the world of aviation, from aviation in social media, aviation education, commercial aviation, the future of aviation. You'll get it all right here in one place. As for the structure of the podcast, it will be a season-based show. Each season will have a subject or a topic with about 10 episodes a season. And my goal is to publish an episode a week, maybe two, depending on the topic for that season. I've already got some great guests lined up, many of whom are very well known in the aviation world, so I'm super excited to be able to produce this content for all of you. And last but not least, who the heck am I? Well, I'm glad you asked. As I stated earlier, my name is Nick Herring. And I am a student at an aeronautical university in California. I hold a private pilot certificate with instrument rating, and I am currently working on my commercial certificate. But more on all of that at a later time. 
Anyway, I just wanted to create this little teaser episode for you to let you know what we have in store for this all new aviation podcast. I'm super excited to be able to produce this for you guys. Season one, episode one will be out soon. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Love that music. Oh, very good music. So he said he interviews uh, like important people in aviation. Have you been contacted by Nick Herring at all? Well, no, I'm a wee bit disappointed. Staff, I mean, has he contacted you? I've not heard anything. Dana? Yeah. No, he's muted still. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I, right. I hit my mic button, but not the mute. Ah. Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, well, that's a good sign. That means that his show is going to be a top quality. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm just a bit worried about a show that's about a World War II um, unguided uh, um, bomb, the V1, Doodlebug, Buzz Bomb. Uh, so I think that's not He's doing a show of about context. A, a ma- weapon of mass destruction. That sounds a bit sad to uh, me. Well, it does sound like it would be a short series, but yeah, I think yeah. that's actually the I'm, speed. I mean, I've already done a plain the, tale about the V1, one. you know, the vengeance no, weapons of Nick, the Nazis. And he's doing a whole podcast. Nick, Nick, What's Nick, the matter Nick, with it? Nick, Nick, V1. It's like the speeds that we do, the V1, VR. Nick hasn't uh-huh. flown in a while. He might oh, that's right. He oh, hasn't flown in a while. I've probably got to get it back in the books, do I? Retard. Retard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew that would come up. Uh, anyway, uh, so if you have a bunch of aviation podcasts, and you, I mean, you just have too many, and you're looking to kind of cull some of the substandard ones, like PTUK, check out <laughs> the V1 po- the podcast. No, I'm just kidding, of course. That's, a, low, a low blow there. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I know that you enjoy those. Well. <laughs> okay. I don't know what I mean. <laughs> moving, well, moving on. Moving on. Swiftly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was an unfortunate series of words that I just uttered. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. So let's continue with uh, who wants to help me out and read one of these darn things. Uh, this is uh, from Chris uh, regarding... Some kind of a stunt in uh, St. Martin. Who wants to volunteer to read this? Number 12. Oh, I'll happily do that. Okay. Okay, so uh, Chris says, couple of, couple criticized for pulling stupid stunt. I've got to make sure I pronounce this correctly. If not, I could get in a lot of trouble. A stupid stunt in St. Martin. One year after a woman dies on the beach. Oh, my God. Um, couple in hot water. Uh, for this stunt um, after doing an acrobatic stunt several feet below a descending aircraft on Mahu Beach in St. Martin. Have I pronounced that right, Dana? Hello, Dana? Earth to Dana? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Trying to figure out which button hit. Yes, she said. (laughs) That's what she said. Yeah, Yeah, indeed. (laughs) So, uh, Oh, my God. Now, why did I pick this up? <laughs> Performers uh, Oleg uh, Kolchenko. Yeah, you don't have to Oleg and Yulia, I think. Yeah, right? Oleg and Yulia, yes. Um, they're quite young. Coleg's, uh, Oleg, sorry, is 36. And Yulia, the obviously attractive uh, pair, one of the pair, mm-hmm. um, 25, appear to be just feet away. And that's quite amusing because she's upside down, so her feet are feet away. Ah, very clever. From the aircraft in the daring snap 
on Maho Beach in the Caribbean island of St. Martin. The duo, who have been performing together for three years, were keen to take the souvenir snap, having just reached the end of a cruise. But despite the impressive timing, the stunt was met with criticism rather than praise from social media users. Um, so we absolutely love acrobatics, and we like to have fun with it outside work, said the Daredevil pair. The beach is dangerous, yet it pardon me, exciting at the same time. A lot of people were taking pictures with a plane above their heads, but we had some idea to make something cool. After a few tries, we managed to perform it as the plane arrived, but we didn't expect it to be so big and so close. It didn't touch my feet, but I felt as much air from the plane. Well, I felt so much air from the plane, and I lost my balance. It was so much fun and excited, but I was. it was only after I... Uh, only after I realised how dangerous it was. Well, I don't know. The two of them, what, what we've got here is a guy standing on the beach uh, with his arms out, balancing on his head. Uh, we're using only one arm. Here's uh, his acrobatic partner, uh, who is uh, stretched out above him. Uh, now, if he's, say, six foot, and she's with her arm out uh, a similar height, uh, that would only put them 12 feet above the beach. Now, I think the chances of uh, this guy's undercarriage uh, touching them only 12 feet above the beach would be pretty remote. Uh, you've been there, Dana, haven't you? What kind of height are they when they come over the beach? Not very high. Yeah, but I mean, well, the, more than 12 there, feet? At least. Is this like uh, more of a... You know, I looked, I, looked, I looked at the photo, and, you know, the photos are deceiving because they're obviously taking it from a, a, a much lower position. It is probably... They're probably crossing the, the fence at... 50? 100 foot? 100? Yeah, 100. 100 I mean, 100... Least. Yeah, I would say at least 100 foot because the, the threshold is, is a matter of, um, you know, probably... The, the the line is probably 100 foot past the fence, maybe 150 feet past the fence, not very far, but certainly when we cross the threshold, I mean, usually it's, you know, you hear 50, 40, 30, right? So over the beach and the beach slants down slightly, so in, and they're not right on the roadway. So the roadway is a two-lane road before the fence, you know, between the beach and the fence. So it's got to be at least 100 feet that they're crossing. It, it, it looks a lot closer than it really was. Yeah, that's that's what I would have said. And, and the fact they shot it from a low angle appears yes, to that's... project them against the aircraft, makes the aircraft look a lot closer. So uh, Ken Hoke, uh, we know Ken, uh, on Twitter has um, tweeted here, and we've got that. Um, they're pro acrobats, so the pose was rehearsed. Tires clear the fence greater than 50 feet. They were down on a beach, so the clearance was probably greater than 100 feet. It was safe and fun, awesome photo op so uh ken obviously uh, knows the place well i guess he uh, operates in there uh, um and he ken is from uh, at aero savvy he's uh, got his own podcast yeah uh if not a blog i think a it blog. might be just yes. a blog yeah um and he, ken's a smart bloke so he, he's not gonna uh, give us a, uh, a bum steer there so yeah it, it was it was a great uh, way to take a picture it looks fantastic Personally, I think we'd all agree that there was no danger. Yeah, I think it was one of those photographic illusion kind of things there. I yeah, don't think a bit were like people who stand behind beside the Eiffel Tower and pretend they're holding it up and yeah. that kind of thing. And you know, you can do all sorts of tricks with photography. 
Absolutely. Well, you know what? Time flies when you're having fun. I just looked at our recording time and looked at the clock and realized that uh, we have been going for, at, well, close to three hours, I think. Wow. Is that right? Uh, 246. 246? Okay. Yeah, well, you know, just after seven. Okay. Well, uh, what do you think? Maybe uh, knock out um, at least one more then, and then we'll yes. end the show? Yes. Okay. Uh, number 13, Josh. Hey, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew, my name is Joshua Potts, and I'm a relatively new listener to this podcast. And like most, most others, I am extremely unhappy and... Wait a minute. Am I reading that right? No, I'm sorry. Um, like most others, I've caught the incredibly infectious APG syndrome. The other day, I was thinking about the possibility of planes being flown by a computer in the very distant future. Note that the very is in bold and would like to ask a question in relation to this. So I was just wondering what effect the introduction of this technology would have on the pilots who fly to earn their living. Would they simply just be fired and replaced by a machine? Would they be helped in finding a new job? Would they have to completely abandon the aviation industry. I'm looking forward to hear your insights into this. Thanks in advance, Josh. Well, first of all, Josh, thanks for becoming part of our community. And uh, again, we do apologize for the infectious APG syndrome. And uh, as you know, uh, evidenced by what you're saying here in your feedback that you know what we think about this idea of single piloted and uh, also remotely piloted uh, aircraft passenger aircraft in the future. Uh, we don't think it's, it's uh, you know, a, a something that we're going to see in the uh, near future. You're not helping at all, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, anywho. Um, yes, so, but how about the very distant future? Very distant future. I do like that uh, term. Post-retirement in my case. Yes, and for my case as well. And I'd say for Dana's case as well. I don't think we're going to see any of this. If ever, it'll be, you know, many, many years uh, before we'll see. Uh, you know, the technology's got a lot of things, uh, a lot of ways to go uh, regarding this uh, concept. But uh, didn't, didn't I see just recently, I think I was reading, I, I think it was in the our uh, Alpha magazine about the fact that they were trying to to pass something in the Congress to allow testing, and there was a big yeah uproar about it. Yeah, we uh, it's in the, the the FAA reauthorization bill that's yeah. passed the House and has not yet passed the Senate, and they have a clause uh, or a section in there that uh, talks about uh, granting uh, research and development funding to look at the concept of single-piloted commercial freight operations. And, uh, yeah, ALPA and I think all the airline unions out there and other safety groups are kind of opposed to that. So we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'd be surprised if that was included in the final passage of the bill, but we'll see. Um, you know, we're not trying to be old uh, buggy whip um, manufacturers or whatever the anecdotal saying is as far as uh you know, the buggy whip manufacturer well you know what do they say the uh the, the 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 horse drawn buggy industry was against the uh the the uh, introduction of horseless carriages oh okay. you know because they were afraid they were going to lose their living or the, their jobs so. or the bu buggy whippers 
I don't know where I came up with the buggy whip. <laughs> I've never heard that term before. Oh, okay. Just... Well, maybe that's just in my demented mind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Peeking into the <laughs> deep, <laughs> deep crevices, crevices within, of my, within Jeff's mind. <laughs> apparently creepy mind. Ah, anyway, um, but the question that he poses, I think, is pretty good. Uh, what, what happens to those of us that happen to be professional airline pilots at the time that it makes this transition? What happens? Does the company uh, decide to uh, use our incredible, resourceful minds and uh, talents to do something else with the company? Or do you think they're more likely to say, thank you, but you're no longer needed and uh, you're out the door? I, I would say the latter. Yeah. But uh, I think there's going to be a bit of warning. So I think, you know, if you look like you're going to be vulnerable, you can always jump ship uh, and, you know, move to a new occupation or an airline that's not going to buy these airplanes. But I think it's safe to say, and we said this many times on our show, that if you're listening to the show right now and you're like, I don't know, you know, 10, 12, 15, 16 years old and you have a dream of becoming an airline pilot, I think your career is going to be safe for uh, the uh, – projected time of your career. I could be completely wrong about that. I don't know how you all feel about it, but um, I don't think that this is, if it does happen, it's going to be in the, as you said, the very distant future. And there's a, a, a terrible silence here, which means... No, we all agreed with you. We've, we've, beaten, we've beaten this one to death. Okay. Really enough more than we can say. Yes. I thought maybe I was, I was afraid that perhaps, no, we don't, none of us believe that, Jeff. Uh, well, I there's, sense no, I mean, there's no sense droning on about it. I mean, we're, no, we're, I, think uh, just, I just I have one maxim. Nigel has something to say. I just have one maxim. Uh, never take financial advice from a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Sound advice. Oh, so what he's saying is anything I might say, yeah, <laughs> take it with a pinch of large grain of salt yeah. <laughs> or several small grains. Yeah. No, I uh, think people will evolve with the times as is required. But as we also always say, that uh, if you're getting your uh, college degree, um, and, and it looks like these days that's less and less of a major requirement for folks that are looking to do our jobs as professional airline pilots. Uh, but if you are going to go to college or you're in college, I would recommend that whatever you study and get your degree in, that it's something that can be your plan B so that... If something like this happens to our industry, you'll be able to, you know, move on with uh, something that you're trained to do. Did you have a plan B, Nigel? Uh, this is my plan B. Yeah. Retirement? I, well, apart from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. plan Z21. <laughs> I, I didn't have a plan B. Okay. I didn't either. <laughs> Great advice, though. Have you ever heard the saying, putting all your eggs in one basket? Yes. That's what I did. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> and it worked out, I think, so far anyway. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Got another five and a half years to go. Who knows? Um, can I we mean, squeeze in one more? You think? Oh, go ahead, Nana. Nana. I, I think so, but I was, I was just going to say this actually is my plan B. I was on plan A. So That's true. I can go back to A if I need to, but I prefer plan B. Now, there's a smart man right there. Yeah, there's a very smart man. Where? It's not in this room. It's right I, behind you. I'm not uh, a smart yeah. man. No, it's right behind you guys. <clears throat> I'm that is a smart That's a smart guy right there. <laughs> oh. I think... Yeah, uh, one more. Get it done. Okay, why not? Hello, APG crew. I'm a latecomer. This is Ramiro. Uh, I'm a latecomer to your podcast, but um, it's now my number one favorite podcast. Woohoo! Sorry, Nev. 
Uh, the good news about finding your podcast at episode 330 is that I have a lot of them to listen to between new releases. I enjoy the whole show, but my favorite part... Oh, who put this in here? I did. Oh. And, and Liz. I, I had to pay Liz to put this in. Yeah, I think Liz and, and uh, Nick have some There's kind of a collusion thing. Under the table. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exchange of... Let me, let me uh, reread this sentence. <clears throat> Getting a little choked up. <laughs> I enjoy the whole show, especially the banter between Dr. Steph, Dana, and Captain Jeff. <laughs> I don't see that sentence. And moving on. Um, definitely thinking it. Oh, wait. Should I actually read what it says? Well, I think he'll be very upset if you don't. Okay. I enjoy the whole show, but my favorite part is the old pilot's plane tale. Nick does an amazing job. Especially for his mental capacity. <laughs> I found his Plain Tales podcast and I'm listening to them all. Wow, good to hear. I do have a question for the old pilot. I have gathered from listening that he's on the A330 for Acme Red and the 340. I assume that he is qualified on the Dash 200 and Dash 300, but does he also fly the A340? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Just answered the question. Yeah, well, well, Jeff. Perhaps I should read this before we do the show. <laughs> okay, does he also fly the A340? Yes. I know the flight decks, I don't think we are allowed to call them cockpits any I call them cockpits. Cockpit. Are, uh, a flight well, deck is, is a carrier, aircraft carrier. I know. That's what I think of when I think of a flight deck. I think of the top surface of an aircraft carrier. Anyway, um, so our, okay, I, so I'm going to rephrase his sentence. I know that the cockpits are similar with obvious exceptions. Four throttles instead of two. Oh, we don't. No, 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 no. Ramiro. You don't call them throttles. You call them thrust levers. Thrust levers. Four thrust levers instead of two and the accompanying instruments. Just curious. Great job. Thanks for the show. And uh, he says, even though I was just recently exposed to the APG syndrome, it has spread quickly and aggressively. Uh, sorry. It's becoming more virulent as yes. time goes on. Oh, poor old Evolution. Ramiro. So Jess already answered the question, uh, Ramiro. Yes, I do. I fly uh, all three. Um, variants. Uh, and for a while, I flew the 340-300 and the 340-600, so that would have made another variant in there. But um, the answer is the flight decks are very, very similar. And uh, for example, when we go into the simulator uh, to do a 330 or a 340 trip, the simulator is the same machine. All they do is take out the throttle quadrant uh, and uh, the panel with the uh, fire push buttons and swap them from a four-engine aircraft to a two-engine aircraft. And that takes about 45 minutes for them to unplug those elements of the cockpit and uh, put in the different ones. Uh, the rest of the uh, cockpit is identical. So um, really and honestly, the, the big difference are the handling qualities of the various aircraft. Um, now the fly-by-wire uh, flight laws uh make that easier but you can't change physics so of course the 330 is uh, is a lighter aircraft the 34600 much heavier so it carries more power and a lot more inertia and that kind of stuff so there is a certain amount you have to think about different speeds different weight categories etc so we do have a little uh, checklist to run through when we change type if you haven't flown that type on the previous uh, sector you uh, run through a little checklist to remind yourself of the major differences uh, and then uh, you make sure you cover any salient briefing points, but that's uh, no big deal. I came over on the uh, A330-200, I believe, because it, in our 
nomenclature, it says 332. So I'm assuming that's the 200. Yeah, that's right. What's the difference between the 332 and the 333? Um, is there, as far as engines, performance, I know that's, that carries more passengers. So obviously the engine thrust rating must be higher on the uh, 300. Uh, yeah, they, they will be. Uh, there's a center gear on the 300 that isn't on the 200, right. at least on ours. Uh, and on ours, we don't have a center tank on the 200. We do. Uh, actually, we don't on the 300 either. It might be the other way around, actually. I'm trying to remember. I can't uh, pull it off the top of my head. But there, there are differences. And, of course, you can have the aircraft built to your specifications anyway. So the differences can be different from airline to airline, airline as well as uh, variant to variant. Excellent. Well, I can tell you that um, it was a very comfortable ride on the way over. I was very close to the back row um, on the uh, left window side. And um, other than the takeoff, which, you know, was because where I, w I was seated, a lot of uh, the rumbling and sound from the uh, thrust of the uh, engine was quite loud. But uh, once we got airborne and they started using the climb power settings, it was relatively quiet. Uh, I thought I was very impressed by how quiet it was and, and the seats were very comfortable. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, and my apologies to that uh, person sitting next to me. I didn't mean to slouch over and drool all over you when I was snoring and sleeping, but <laughs> hope you'll forgive Hazard, me for that. Hazards of travel. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else that he asked? Did we, uh, did we cover that all? I think so. I think we did. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what that means? Did I skip any? I'm sure I did. Nope. No? Okay. Well, that means it's time for us to end this show, and uh, in just a few days we'll be recording the next one. So hurry up and listen. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more about our show, you can head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website where you'll find information about the crew and the community, which of course is the best part of this uh, whole endeavor, um, and other stuff like how you can join the coffee fund and, uh, and much, much more. We have uh, apps for your Android and iOS devices if you want to uh, download them for free. No ads or anything else on them. And uh, we're also on social media. And, and uh, Dr. You, Steph is going to talk us about that. I would be delighted to. You can head over to Twitter. Check us out at APG Crew. You can find our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of the page there. Or you can head over to Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, it's a great place to check out on all the community happenings and see what people in the community are interested in and sharing with everyone else. And we also are on Slack and uh, Hillel is here to tell us. Wait, hang on. Is Hillel? I thought I saw I don't know, I don't know if you made it across. Hillel! Yeah! Come over here. Is this okay, I'm right there. <laughs> He's standing right behind you. He's, pretty, he's, <laughs> he's been there. He's got a nice uniform. Well, I didn't, <laughs> didn't miss him. That was you. Oh, tell us about Slack. APG listeners. Please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1, and see you in Slack.
Thanks, Hillel. And uh, also, uh, before we go, we want to tell you about that actual, actually a very, very fantastic podcast. I was just poking fun at uh, Neb because uh, they just make us look ridiculous. Uh, if you watch their video, uh, production is just amazing. And uh, please tell us about you, how we can learn more about you and the uh, show that you're a co-host on. Very kind, Jeff. Yeah, it's Plain Talking UK. As that's uh, plaintalkinguk.com. And uh, you can find that on Twitter and Facebook as well. And you can contact me at NevTech27 on Twitter. Excellent. And finally, last but not least, Nige, thank you so much for your incredible hospitality. We lift up our glasses and, uh, again, cheers. And uh, your lovely wife, Valerie, who has uh, been just wonderful putting up with all our nonsense. Uh, We're not going to go into all of it. Uh, But it's been a grand time, and I'm looking forward to more uh, great times here before we head over to uh, Nick and Jilly's wonderful place. And, uh, again, thank you very much for – you've just been awesome. You got me a bit worried, actually, because you said more wonderful times, and I thought, he's not coming back, is he? Well, didn't you you tell him that we were coming back? (laughs) The whole team next year. But do we have to pack up and leave today? (laughs) Tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. Okay. Well, that's a recent development. Okay. Well, thanks anyway, Nige. And, uh, yeah, that's all I can think of. Anything else from Dana or Steph from the U.S.? Well, Dana's on the phone. No, nope. oh. nope. I'm good here in the U.S. Okay. Yep. We're holding down the fort here. Okay. okay. Excellent. Well, we uh, look very much forward to seeing the both of you later this week. And, uh, in, well, next week. No. Yeah, next week. And until next time, <laughs> wishing you... Clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Hasta la vista, baby. Ciao. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Meep, meep. Good day.